Hello again, friends. The great Brian Last here. You there. We are back with another of the Jim Cornette Omnibus series. We are on the bus once again for a look back at those we lost in 2023. The wrestling greats, the people who have been around the business, some of the stories you may know, some of the stories you may not know. But we are going to look back now at those we lost in 2023. This will be a two-part omnibus. Part one starts now. Well, Jim, let's change the topic, but actually stay on the note of passings. What are your thoughts on the passing? The word that just got out, I heard from Scott Cornish this morning, the passing of one of your very good friends, Fred the Elephant Boy. I hadn't, I, okay, thanks uh, for surprising me. I had no idea. What happened? I don't know. I'm just hearing this uh, as we Well, how do we know we can trust Cornish? Well, I got actually more He's, he's a, a noted liar and a prevaricator. That's not true at all. But I got other tweets from other people saying that Fred the Elephant Boy has indeed passed away. Uh, um, you know, I didn't know Fred that well and his brother Kid Vicious. Um, I would see them on Dennis Corluzzo's shows when we would come up. I mean, they were big wrestling fans. And, you know, Dennis uh, booked them quite often. And they would be at, you know, the occasional wrestling fan convention or whatever the case. But he was a nice guy. I, I actually never really knew what the complete deal was with the whole thing. And, and well, you, you being a Stern aficionado, how did he get involved with the Howard Stern show? I think I've heard the story, but it's been 25 years. I'm not exactly sure either. I think someone just said to maybe Gary Delabate or someone, I know this guy, you guys got to get him on the air because he could barely speak English and he's weird. And they did that and he became somewhat of a hit. But well, but the, okay, but the, the story of how he was named the elephant and now somebody is going to probably quote chapter and verse of some book Howard Stern has written or something where it's in there. But basically he was on, he was a caller on the air and then somebody else called him an animal or something he said i'm not an animal i'm a human and they said oh he's the elephant boy that's how he got his name from what i was told in the locker room years ago in in new jersey so it must have been true one of the but, big uh, questions though is how did howard get him on the air make him into a whack pack superstar and never do anything with his brother because kid vicious if you think fred was the show Kid Vicious was the show. Yeah, they were an entertaining pair, and and the kid was even more over the because Fred was kind of like the normal one when when they were both around, and the and he was a normal guy. He just he had a speech impediment and he some odd quirks about him in general, but he was a nice guy. So I'm sorry to hear. And how old could he have been? Maybe I, like late fifties, if I had to guess. Well, I guess that's. I was going to say he couldn't be any older than me, but I guess I'm old now, too. Have some audio here. Let's see if uh, it plays all right, because I hate to say this was one of the first things I thought of when I heard that he passed, but this is classic. Remember when Dennis, for a brief while, was actually a regular heel manager in Memphis on Memphis TV in 92? Yes. And he said that Fred the Elephant Boy and Kid Vicious were Jerry's illegitimate children, Brian and Kevin, and that Jerry Lawler won't pay child support. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that was a, folks, in the summer, was it the summer of 92? That was a an angle that was going on in Memphis that these two, uh, well, the two brothers, one of a, a Stern Show uh, 
celebrity and, and his offbeat brother were actually the illegitimate children of Jerry the King Lawler. Neither one of them could speak English well. Jerry Lawler, of course, being one of the greatest linguists in wrestling history, but let's hear some audio here. Dave Brown introducing this crew. Match coming up Monday night, Coliseum, 8 o'clock when it all begins. Dennis Carluza back again. All right, Jack Brown, listen to me. You know, I never like that smirk on your face. And I'm also forgetting my manners. I forgot to tell Lance Russell he's gotten a heck of a tan since I last seen him. But I've had it with these stinking people in this town. I've had it with, these sti- with the stinking town. I've had it with that stinking Jerry Lawler. Let me tell you something. You see me soften them up for Mike Dorgendorf a little earlier? I'm going to bring somebody out right now, two people. I'm going to bring Jerry Lawler's sons out right now. Brian and Kevin, come on out here. These kids... Or who I'm going to be talking to. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you if you followed any of this over the months or not. These are not Jerry Lawler's kids. <laughs> I'm sorry. They are Jerry Lawler's kids. Come here, turn around here. Look, in, look at that profile, the regal chin, the regal nose. Let me tell you something right now. I want all you people, please, just for a minute, to shut your eyes and listen to Brian Lawler talk, and you would know his voice from Jerry Lawler's. Brian, say a few words. Dad, Whippy. Up to here, recognize us as your children. And please give us the proper respect and my courage song. Kevin. Yeah, look, Jerry, we've been through this time and time again. You all us trying to support and we ain't gonna stop until you give it to us. Let me tell you something right now. I just want to see how. <laughs> He's actually pretty convinced. He's pretty good on the mic. <laughs> and and by the way, and I've I've got it because it was a sight gag, and the people won't get it because it's just audio. But when Dennis Corluzo, bless him, said, and I want to say, Lance Russell, you've got a great tan since the last time I saw you. That wasn't Lance sitting there. It was Corey Macklin, who's an African American gentleman who had taken over the co-announcing spot, and everybody in Memphis at that point probably shit themselves. Because Lance was a local icon, not to be uh, bullied around. But that... (laughs) I'm going to guess Jerry was booking that summer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was a I think that was actually the summer that Jerry Jarrett started his construction business and wasn't around much. Uh, And Lawler was definitely booking. And... Oh my God! And, and and Dennis, you know, Dennis was fucking great. That was it, it, that's like sitting down to dinner with Dennis at uh, at a restaurant somewhere, except if he was on television as a heel. But anyway, well, I'm sorry to hear about Fred the Elephant Boy. May he rest in peace. Of course, we have to begin today by talking about the tragic news: the passing of Jay Briscoe. And to do that with me, of course. The leader of the cult of Cornette, Mr. Jim Cornette. <sighs> well, shit, I didn't know how I was going to start this to begin with, but now I'm just flummoxed. Um, you know, I, I wish sometimes, Brian, we were like normal people. Instead of doing a podcast, when something really bad happens, we can just avoid human contact for a month or so and eat a lot of greasy food. And, you know... But we've got to talk about this right after it happens because same thing I said with Bobby Eaton. If we don't do it now, we can't ever do another show because that's the first thing we got to talk about. It's that important. And 
You know, a lot of times when shit like this happens, even if you really like or love the person or have known them however long, it's wrestling, folks, let's face it. Unless it's old age or, you know, cancer or some kind of unpreventable illness, in many cases, when you talk about something like this, you well, you know, personal habits or lifestyle, you know, he should have taken care of himself. You know, that t- there's some mitigation at least in that, but in this case, there's not, because it's fucking ridiculous. Through no fault of his own, he's minutes from his house, from the, the farm where they all live, the family all lives, you can, you know, see everybody in the goddamn family. I think the way I've seen everything laid out, they all live there on the farm. And minutes from there, taking his kids to school, or not actually not not to school, but to cheerleading practice or whatever at the school. And some fucking woman, girl, whatever, um, it, 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 this was not, they weren't on the interstate. I don't, people can't picture Laurel County and Sandy Fork and, you know, Delaware. It's rural. It was a two lane road, probably with, they may have been the only traffic. Who the fuck knows? And the woman just for some unknown reason crosses over from her lane, cross the middle lane, hits him head on. Boom. And she's dead, so we won't get a, explanation from her ass over this i'm i hope maybe they found a cell phone laying around because if if they do a alcohol content test and that comes up negative you know nobody can fucking exist without texting on the phone in the car anymore but nevertheless so both of his daughters are still in the hospital and i mean it's not like people are, uh, you can't just be constantly hounding this family. Well, how, how are the daughters? So the last I heard was what they had posted. It was a day ago that uh, one was in surgery, you know, a back surgery, which doesn't sound good. And the other one was stable, but still in, you know, critical condition or whatever. But just taking them to cheerleading. And I got a um, I got an email. Uh, I got a number of emails, not only personal but also to my website. But this from I don't know this guy named Scott, but he's from he's a listener and he's from uh, Laurel County or Sussex County, Laurel, Delaware. I said Laurel County a few minutes ago. Whatever the case, Scott from up there in Sussex County. He wrote, I can truly say that our little community, shit, our little community has never been so heartbroken than to hear the news of Jay's passing. Schools and businesses are closed. They closed the school district for the day in honor of, of them because of what Jay and his family meant up there. But Schools and businesses are closed. Social media is exclusively an outpouring of love for Jamin Pugh and his family. 
Jay was a frequent sighting out and around Sussex County, Delaware. I've never met a more friendly and down-to-earth human being in my entire life. It didn't matter who you were, what color your skin was, or your sexual preference. Jay was a friendly face to all. I was proud to call him friend and look to him as an example of what a father should be. I can only hope to be half the father that Jay was to his children. He was an A-plus father up until the very end, as he was killed taking his little girls to cheerleading practice. Our community will never be the same after this horrible tragedy, but he will never be forgotten around these parts. Jay Briscoe was a legend, and his memory will live on forever. This guy meant so much to the people up there that knew him, not even because he was a wrestler. They they knew him. It's a small town, a small area up there. We used to make, you know, jokes about Sandy Fork, Delaware on Ring of Honor television and the, you know, the number one sons of Sandy Fork. But it's true. It's Delaware sounds like it's in the Northeast and et cetera. And there are. Obviously, big city elements, Wilmington, but this is as rural as you can get. And Jay, he was, uh, I didn't even realize to the extent he was involved till I read some of the articles. And God, you know, Mike Johnson, again on pwinsider.com, did a great piece that you need to look up. But Jay was coaching. Uh, to his kids, his son, who wasn't in the accident, thank goodness, uh, but was coaching his kids' sports teams and helped out at the school there. And not only that, but it wasn't a rib. You know, when we talked all those times on Ring of Honor television, going back to when I was there 10, 12 years, 13, 14 years ago, whatever it was, um, of the Briscoe family, you know, they had that RV, that giant RV that they would drive to the Manhattan Center for the big matches in New York because their mother and their father and the, the sister, their cousins, kids, they always had their family around them. And they tr- they would turn down plane tickets to be able to, you know, drive and bring the family that had uh, Papa Briscoe, their dad, I love that fucking guy, had supported them from the time he helped teach them out of themselves you know, how to wrestle at first in the backyard before they ever got any training. And that's something that we we knock self-trained wrestlers because of the wide variety of self-trained wrestlers that you can tell. And the ones that don't ever seek any training after that or don't take criticism or don't take advice or whatever the case. These guys were self-trained, but they fit none of that other category. They were Bobby Eaton's. Because they were, they saw it and they loved it and they could naturally do the movements. And somehow they were also able to translate it into figuring out how to fucking work once that they got around people who could and they osmosis that too. But as past being wrestlers, we'll get to that shortly. Just the, I can't imagine what's going on with the family because of how, if you, 
you know, found anybody in the wrestling business that was more in love with and loved and wrapped up in their family, it would be the Briscoe. It couldn't, there couldn't be anybody more. So, and you've seen, I don't know when, I mean, it looked like a head of state would have passed away on Twitter from everybody currently in the wrestling business or that's ever been in a locker room with them or, or, or involved with anything to do with Jay's career. I mean, you can tell when people are just, Oh, we're sorry. Something happened. No, this is, everybody is torn up and that's, you know, that's hard to find, and it's more than like some legend from goddamn Attitude Era was gone. It's it's it, you know, even though Jay was was not on national television, everybody that interacted with the fans uh, that have seen the Briscoes are broken up, and the people who've worked with them, and everybody that's interacted with them, and so. Uh, I don't really know which direction to go with this from here, except that it's just, it's when something like that happens through, through no fault of anybody's doing a completely routine, wonderful thing that they are dedicated to doing for their children. You know, <sighs> help me figure out a direction here. Well, I want to talk more about, the man because you got to know him and his family because you got to know them. But let's go back to the beginning because in the early days of Ring of Honor, there were some names that were kind of indie superstars. And then there were a couple names that stood out because of the name Briscoe. Who are these guys calling themselves Briscoe? It's a big name to, even though there's, <laughs> yeah. even though there's an E at the end, it's a big name to yeah. stand up to. And when I first started seeing Ring of Honor and they were very young, they didn't have hair. I mean, they were very yeah. young. But they stood out. And like you said, and I never even thought about the Bobby Eaton comparison, but the movement, the way their bodies moved in the ring, whether they were doing crazy stuff or just the basic stuff, especially as they got older, it really stood out. What were your first impressions of them? Because you were in Ring of Honor, what, 2003, 2004? It, it was 2004. Uh, and For I'm the Midnight sure. Express reunion, yeah. you started doing it, yeah. Yes, and uh, and it, well, I think I had even done maybe the first Ring of Honor show before the Midnight reunion, but Gabe, uh, nevertheless, Gabe had uh, Sapolsky had called me, and he had these these young kids, and he wanted to know if I would come up and make a show. I can't even remember was it Dayton, Ohio, because that was the closest they ever got to Louisville, or maybe I went to Philly the first. I don't know. But he said, these kids I've got, they're, you know, they're young, but they're really, they're good. They're going to be good. And I'd like you to manage them. We're going to put our belts on them. What? Okay. And he told me the Briscoe brothers and I laughed, right? I'm thinking Jack and Jerry. And I thought, okay. And I, you know, there was an element of role minds into Briscoe's, just the idea of the name, but okay, whatever. And I went and did, and again, what tremendous kids with tremendous attitudes. But again, then. Mark was seven. Mark would have been 17 and Jay would have been 19, maybe, or, you know, right before those birthdays, whatever the case. And like you said, they had no hair. They had crew cuts and they, they were, they, they looked like 
shit and i mean that in the nicest way for because they they didn't look like anything they i think they were amateur wrestlers i think they were still wearing the shoulder strap thing like it just a singlets and boots and crew cuts and no beards and just teenage kids and i was like well okay but then when they got in the ring and even though they were you know what uh, i'm <laughs> And God, this has been a bad couple of days for me because I'll fucking digress for a second. I, Dark Side of the Ring was here yesterday at the castle. It's no secret they're going to have season four. And I was talking about other people that I've known or worked with in the past that are gone. So it's been a great time for that. But as somebody, another subject was Terry Gordy that I made some comments on as in relation to something that they're doing. And I said, well, I first saw him when he was 16 years old. And he was big and he had the size and he could do the shit. But he was kind of klutzy because he was 16 years old. And but he was a puppy with big paws, right? Um, The Briscoes were puppies with big paws. Do they say that in New Jersey, Brian? I'm sure someone does, yes. Somebody probably does. But a puppy with big paws in down south, you see that he's going to be a big dog. Right. He's got big paws. He's going to grow into it. They were puppies with big paws because they just nobody at that point. I mean, how could they, for fuck's sake? They're teenagers. Nobody had really they hadn't been around enough people that knew to explain, Okay, you can do all this stuff, but let's when should you do it? and How should you do it? And don't step on each other's stuff. Right. Just typical stuff that when guys are green and they're teenagers. And so at the time, and I, but anyway, I enjoyed them as people and you could tell they, and they could do the shit, right? They just, again, had no look And who have I said is the best looking, most real gimmick, not only in fucking tag team wrestling, but maybe in all of wrestling today, who have I been saying it for several years now, the fucking Briscoes, they went from fucking tights and you know, faces, yeah, there they are with no hair, no beard, no whatever the fuck to the best looking fucking most real thing in the wrestling business. So it can happen. And you could really make an argument and I don't know if you should say an argument or just a statement. Despite the success that FTRs had in the ring and of course with critical acclaim the last year, despite even what the biggest Young Bucks fan thinks of them in terms of actual tag teams, the best tag team of the last 20 years is probably the Briscoes. Well, I try to explain it like the FTR are technically the best tag team in the ring, I think, in the business. As far as professional wrestling, tag team wrestling, execution of things, even psychology of I've said the only fault they have is when they fucking get overconfident in their opponents and run off and leave them, right? Otherwise, not, they're flawless. But as far as a look and as far as promos, which is part of the package, the Briscoes were stronger in that category, obviously. And so it's a one-two fucking situation, I think. But as I've said, the Briscoes are, were perfect in look and perfect in sound and fantastic in the ring. So they might even have to have the not. We'll, we'll not litigate it right now. But from from that period of time in 2004 and 2005, I was working with 
Gabe on different shows, and I managed them several times. And like I said, as people are wonderful. And they were respectful to everybody in the business, but especially to learning shit and to taking advice and whatever. I was going to ask you about that because we hear a lot nowadays and every veteran that comes out of, you know, AEW will say a lot of these guys or all of these guys or most of these guys don't want advice. They don't seek it out, but they certainly don't want it. What were these guys like? What were the Briscoes like when they were young in terms of taking advice? The opposite. Uh, and, and it would be like a yes, sir. I had to tell him a number of times early on, please don't call me, sir. I'm old enough as it is. But, you know, no, they wanted to know. And, and that's why they learned. And then I'll forget to say this later. So I'll say it now because I'm it, it's not chronological. But the last several times I've dealt with them. They're doing the same thing that we were. They're they've learned, and they're trying to help other guys, and or you know, pitch in and say, hey, you know, blah blah blah. Not in a, not in a way like do this and do that, but hey, brother, you know, because Jay was always who somebody tweeted the first time I met him. I asked him, it may have been Generico, said, what do you guys want to do? And Jay said, hey, fuck it, let's just go out there and fucking kill it. He would, and and he'll be excited to help do that with other talent also. So it came, but anyway, and that's a, from in those early years. Yes. Puppies with big paws. Did I ever dream they were going to look like this uh, 18 years later, whatever? No. Uh, but they, at the same time, then I left ring of honor for what? Three years because of the TNA situation. I was with them and ring of honor and they, the TNA pulled their talent. And I've explained this. I could, I had a different contract, but I couldn't fucking show up. They can't get Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. They'd have booted me out of the building. But there was no breakup. So I went back in 2009, and there it's five years later. And now the big pause, now the Briscoes, all of a sudden, they've picked up everything. I mean, they didn't look exactly like they look today. I don't think they were as ripped. And I don't think Jay had the dreadlocks yet, but they had a look. And their matches, not only were they doing all the shit that they were doing before, but they were exciting and they made more sense and they'd come along. And I was like, oh, the dim boys have grown up. And it was it was exciting because you could, you know, not having followed everything they were doing for three or four years and then boom, see them again, the difference was astounding and it was so much more positive for the better, right? And that's when, I mean, obviously, uh, at first Adam Pierce was the booker and yeah, the Briscoes are figured in. The Briscoes were always figured in. I'm not saying that I was the, you know, the only proponent they had. And then when Delirious got to book, yes, the Briscoes are figured in. But when Sinclair bought the company my there there was a lot of great talent in ring of honor at the time but not i thought the briscoes were two of the four or five most important people for television because they were so visual and they were so different and they were so real can we stop for one second just yes. to recap a little of their history they've been working if not exclusively, predominantly for Ring of Honor from the beginning of their career up until this point. Ring of Honor was a videotape business or a DVD business. Eventually, they had the HD Net Show. And then with the Sinclair purchase, they got TV on Sinclair, Sinclair, 
on Sinclair's syndicated network. So the Briscoes really had no exposure to other than shooting promos for a video camera for a DVD release. They didn't have much exposure to doing any TV at all. No, and that's that's part of the reason why that I was excited about Ring of Honor getting on Sinclair because a lot of those guys had not had much or any television exposure, so they hadn't really been ruined in terms of people's mind as preconceived notions or whatever. And, you know, even though they had only been doing videos, they'd still been talking because Gabe did promos and everybody, Ring of Honor did promos even when they didn't have television because the videos had interviews too and the blah, blah, blah. And then the website came along. So they'd had some practice, but at the same time, Mark and Jay were just being Mark and Jay. And, you know, just, I mean, they didn't yell and scream and threaten to bash people's heads in in the locker room, but the the interplay between the two of them were, and it, it, then it got to the point where I especially fleshed it, helped them flesh it out in Sinclair or encouraged them to flesh it out where Mark did the fills, Jay's doing the main part of the promo, and then Mark comes in with those classic fucking things that Mark, Mark wrote all of his shit because how do you write that, right? But, and sometimes they'd say shit in the locker room. And that's why I would say, wait, remember it or I'll write it down. Say it on a promo because, you <laughs> you know, no, it wasn't like we were writing for them. We were just encouraging them how to do themselves on television. And so that was and that was the thing. And, and from the start with uh, obviously with Sinclair, the Briscoes were, as I said, were always figured in. And that's why even like Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin had had WWE exposure on television and with Kurt Angle and blah, blah, blah. But they'd been gone for a couple of years. They hadn't been beaten into powder, you know, and they could still go in the ring. So I've got them involved specifically so they could work with the Briscoes because and we managed to get multiple dynamic out of it because at first people were thrilled to see Haas and Benjamin because they were names. And then when, when they started fucking with the, you know, people that they liked from ring of honor, then they kind of were heels. So we, and then we had the Briscoes for a while turn heel because they said, fuck it. We got screwed and they would do this. We got screwed. So we're going to fuck everybody up. The Kings of wrestling were in a mix too. You had a great tag team division well, there. And, and there again is the, even before Sinclair, because that's, we lost hero and Claudio right when we were getting Sinclair television, but the HD net shows, uh, you know, were out there, but, um, ever get the honor club for fuck's sake, everybody, because a lot of these matches are on there, but they had two with hero and Claudio and, and old Shane Hagedorn, their manager, Kings of wrestling. One was in Toronto in 2011. This was, this may have been either before or right after I think it was right after the Sinclair purchase, but it had been booked before. But it was the Briscoes against Hero and Claudio in a goddamn, I don't know if we called it a Toronto street fight. I don't know if Toronto's noted for their fucking throwdowns up there, but it was a fucking anything goes. It was a street fight match because it was built to in the fucking angle for weeks, weeks, months and months. And not only did they do all of their shit, because Hero and Claudio, at the time, I was comparing to the Midnight Express in terms of who's the best in-ring heel team in the business, because they could work with, they could work the young guy style 
And then they could work a fucking pro wrestling tag team match. And Hero was such a, a fucking, I mean this in the most loving way, a wrestling nerd about all styles that he could do everything. And, you know, he, Claudio learned a lot of what he learned from Hero. But anyway, um, so they were having great tag team matches. We have the street fight match in Toronto. And I gave them some of the old territory street fight stuff that nobody had done in at that point, 20 years or whatever the fuck it was. And they loved it. And not only the Briscoes, as I said, Hero loved all that shit. He was receptive, but they were able to work that into their shit. And, you know, we did the, the because a lot of times they would get so excited, the Briscoes would, that they would, do, Mark would do something big while Jay was doing something big over on the other side of the ring or out on the floor at the same time. And I said, don't, don't not do your shit. Just don't do it at the same time as the other guy. Slow to build here, make this pay off. People will pop more if you just set it up and, you know, then foil it later, whatever. So we do, they did the thing where they tied, I believe it was, it was probably Jay. They tied Jay's, basically got a rope and tied him neck, his neck around the ring post where he was choking and couldn't breathe. And he's tied, he can't get away. And then they're double teaming his brother. And finally, I think one of the ring crew guys comes over the railing and pulls a pocket knife out of his goddamn pocket and cuts Jay loose while he can still fucking breathe and he slumps to the ground. That was taken from an actual real life incident where they tied the baby face to the ring post and a fan from the front row came over the rail with a goddamn knife and cut him loose. And then so Jay comes out from under the ring with the goddamn fire extinguisher to fucking blind the heels and start to come back and everybody's bleeding. And then they broke a table and the fucking place went ballistic. I love that match because it, it was ring of honor and it was a Toronto crowd and Ted Reeve arena held what 1200. We sold that one out, believe it or not, folks. And they loved that shit. And it was part modern wrestling chaos and part, you know, old, old school psychology that these guys got. And then the, the, the other one, were you there for Papa Briscoe's six man in the Manhattan center? I don't think so. Every single ring of honor show you ever asked me to come to, they were on the show. I thought about that the other day, every single one of those shows, obviously. Oh yeah. But I, I, I don't know if I saw that. I may have, I was going to ask you, Whose idea was it? When did he first start getting involved in? Obviously, they weren't doing TV before that, but whose idea was it to get him involved in that stuff? Because he was great. You know me. And I thought, well, God damn, because these guys wanted to make wrestling as emotional and meaningful as possible. Like I said, Hero and Claudio and the Briscoes. And the Briscoes were known by the ring of honor fans and by everybody who knew them as being so involved with their family. And it was not uncommon for their family to be around. So on the HD net show and God damn, you know, I hope that I'm pretty sure it was, I don't want to lie, but I'm pretty sure that it was either going to air on or we were shooting it on or something. It was around the time of father's day. Okay. Cause this was probably the, the insemination of the idea. And, well, Papa Briscoe, the Briscoe's father, who, by the way, is, if you haven't seen him, is twice as jacked up. He's, at the time, he was, what, well, I guess still, but he was 30 or 40 pounds bigger than either Mark or Jay. He's fucking, he looks like Bullet Bob Armstrong if he came from Delaware. 
big arms and a fucking gray hair, but he can cut a promo because he's a wrestling fan too. And he's got a voice. Anybody saw the, the uh, fight at the chicken farm between Mark and Jay? He was the referee, right? He was, all right, boys, get it out of your system. <laughs> so anyway, there is fucking uh, uh, Papa Briscoe at ringside, Father's Day, whatever the case may be. And Shane Hagedorn, the obnoxious manager of the Kings of Wrestling. God, it's been 12 years. I can't even remember exactly what was said. But the point is, he made a comment, an ill comment about the Briscoes and their parentage to Papa Briscoe's face. And Papa Briscoe slapped him naked and hid his clothes. He just fucking slapped the shit out of Hagedorn, and here comes the Kings of Wrestling, and I believe it was Hero that hit that fucking elbow on Papa Briscoe, and down he went. And as Gary Hart would say, the shit, as they say, brother, was on. And now it was a a personal blood feud between the Briscoes and the Kings of Wrestling, and Long story, folks, again, you know, the Honor Club, I don't know what they got on there, but I actually, I'm going to try to check out these two matches because I've been thinking about them and I haven't seen them in 12 years. But we went to New York and God, was it the Manhattan Center or was that in Hammerstein? I can't remember which. But it was the six-man tag with the Briscoes and Papa Briscoe against the Kings of Wrestling and Shane Hagedorn. And the Ring of Honor fans online from Bratislava and Yugoslavia and all points south of Brazil were just up in arms. They're doing up with, they're putting their father in a ring. We wanted a six star match from the Tokyo Dome. This horse shit. God damn it. This old Southern wrestling bullshit. We can tell Cornette's there. And. When we came to the night of the match, which, by the way, whichever venue it was in in the Manhattan Center was full. Every seat was full. And those people in New York, the hardest audience, supposedly, for smart fans, they came unglued by the time they got to the finish of that fucking thing because Papa... And first, they did not give a shit for Papa Briscoe, even when he walked out and they saw what he what he looked like, that he had come ready for bear. But by the time that he hit the fucking Road Warrior Hawk clothesline off the top rope onto one of those bastards that had to take his stiff shit, the place was coming unglued for Papa Briscoe. He put the work in. They they worked out a match, and Papa did his shit, and the people loved it, and the Briscoes triumphed. And that was another one of my favorite matches because it was real. It was lit. This is what the guy helped teach his sons how to wrestle in their backyard of their farm. And now they're in a feature match on a sold out Ring of Honor show. And we had to make Papa Briscoe take a payoff. He, he, and we gave it, and by the statute of limitations run out, I got money and we gave it to him in cash under the fucking table as a thank you. And he tried to give it back to us. And he said, oh, no, no. I said, what the fuck? And they brought the whole family up in the RV. And you've never seen grins on anybody's faces like that. I love now that I think about it. That I mean, it wasn't like we were bringing Papa Briscoe in to be a goddamn recurring, you know, contender for the title. 
but that they got to team with their father in fucking New York from a sellout in the Manhattan Center or wherever it was, whichever bill, whichever room. Final battle 2010 Manhattan Center. There you go. There you go. That was, you know, that was probably one of the greatest nights of their life. And I was just liking it because it was great old fashioned wrestling. But those are two of my favorite matches that they had. Um, but anyway, and then, um, you know, what was it? Obviously, I was gone um, when the when Jay won the world title, and I was I, I was all in favor of that because he was a fantastic single, also. But my fondness for tag team wrestling, I just always preferred the brothers together because they were the. You know, again, can you say Jay was the best in the world as a single? In a lot of ways, maybe yes, especially when he was the champion there, but they were definitely the best tag team, you know, at that time. And and now with FTR, as we said, one and two, depending on your preference. So, you know, and that's, as a matter of fact, they did a thing with, with Sinclair, Mark Davis, the... Um, the guy who was the head of production for Ring of Honor and, well, the, not only the early days when he was the production for Ring of Honor, but then when they actually hired people and got a department, he was the head of that too. Uh, but we, we put him on the bus one time, on the on the RV to, with the camera, and they did an hour TV special on On the Road with the Briscoes and at the farm and with the family and the whole nine yards. Because that, that was what, the point I was going to make and I never got to a little while ago. They were so important for television because it was so different. And they were so good at everything. It, it related the promos and the, the gimmick and the visuals of, of having the farm and not having to work any of that. And just the things and the, on, the, on the bus with the family, whatever. That they were always, uh, as far as I was concerned, going to be figured into whatever we did on television with Sinclair. You know, because that was kind of the epitome of Ring of Honor was supposed to be where the young, you know, wild ass personalities and and or badass wrestlers or fighters that don't do the phony showbiz stuff want to go. And they were perfect for that. But at the same time, and you know what it was? God damn it. I can't remember now whether it was under Kerry's administration or under Sinclair's administration. But despite how much we loved them and wanted to depend on them in the whole nine yards, the time where they were going to get a look by the WWE and Jay sent the tweet. And at that time, we had heard from them, obviously, that they had an opportunity and it... It wasn't like that they were dangling already a giant contract in front of them, but as I recall the way it was relayed to me, they were going to bring them to Florida for a week and give them a tryout, the WWE I'm talking about. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like a fucking brass band welcome with open arms, but to the credit of whoever administration it was, um, I think it may have still been Kerry, but it might have been Sinclair, but we were going to... No, it was probably still Kerry. 
but we were going to let them out of whatever we had with them if they had an opportunity because everybody wanted Mark and Jay to have the have the biggest contract or the most success or whatever that they could have and because obviously and I'll admit it in a guilty fashion I when I heard that the tweet had caused them to rescind the invitation I was kind of relieved because I I I didn't think that the WWE and history has probably borne me out on this. I didn't think the WWE would let the Briscoes be the Briscoes and with the Briscoes not being the Briscoes, I was afraid it would all be for naught and they would have ended up happier staying in Ring of Honor. Um but I did remark to Delirious at the time I believed that it was the first million dollar tweet ever sent in history because it because you, you couldn't well i don't know because then the, there was also the the uh, comment from the wwe one time i can't remember which one of the brain trust it was that the briscoes were not cosmetically pleasing which was the exact reason why they should be on fucking television because as we mentioned with the young rock trying to recreate the superstars of the past, nobody looks like that. And they had a look, not everybody's look. So can we talk about the tweet for a second? Just because so much of everything after that point, at least in terms of wrestling, it kind of goes back to, you know what? Hold on, hold a thought on the tweet. Cause I got one more story to tell. Cause then we'll talk about the tweet. Cause I'm, I'm going to probably get cranky about that. I went back after I was gone. That made a lot of fucking sense. Is this, is when, this a letter I, or are you saying this? No. <laughs> God damn it. Um, when I went back to work with Ring of Honor in conjunction with the Crockett Cup in what was that, 2018 or 19? They did at Charlotte, North Carolina. They did the pay-per-view out of the new arena up there around Concord, wherever the fuck it was. And in the first round, it was the Briscoes versus the Rock and Roll Express. And I was doing commentary on the show, but they also asked me to produce that match, which I was happy to. And so there was, I'd left at the end of 2012, and there's seven years later, I come back, and there's the Briscoes again. Well, and of course, big smile and big grins. But now, as much of a difference as I'd seen you know, from what, 2005 to 2012 now, there's multiple times more now they've got the whole gimmick is blossoming out and Jay's ripped and, and and both of them, they've had, Jay had some serious knee injuries and I think Mark has had a few things, but I don't know how they they were able to stay in the shape they were in, but they, st- they did that shit and it looked like it would kill you, but they could do it. And anyway, they had the whole package together and they were really, just they look like ass kickers and now they're working with the rock and roll express and to be honest i mean they obviously they loved it because they looked at it like of if a baseball player of today got a chance to play against or with mickey mantle they'd just be thrilled even if mickey couldn't hit the ball as far right you know what i'm saying well in this case you know, I honestly, 
I thought, well, it's the Ring of Honor fans. I don't want them to be too hard on Ricky and Robert, but they were there in large part because they needed to sell tickets in Charlotte, and Ricky and Robert were a primary reason why they sold any live event tickets in Charlotte. But I didn't want the people to think, oh, goddamn, now, you know, here's the, because there's the Briscoes, right? And there's Ricky and Robert at that age, in this day and age. So I didn't want them to have to go too long. I left it up to Jay and Mark at first, and I was like, maybe we can do, you know, something short where you jump and a blah, 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 and then they get some hope. No, no, no. We can do it. We, we All four of us, we want to have this match. And they were all fired up to have a fucking match, and they did, and the people live loved it. And it actually got quite good reviews, even from the more harsher critics on the internet. But that's now Jay and Mark are obviously not leading the Rock and Roll Express, but they were able to, they had learned enough and they had come along enough that they knew how to feed those guys and make it easier for them to be the rock and roll they used to be in front of the town they were the most popular in. And that, you know, again, just professional all the way. So, I, you know, that's... I guess what three almost four years ago, whatever is the last time that I got to see him or work with him. But it was just amazing the transformation through the years that you could you could see when you bopped in at different points in in their career. And they were and again with Jay thirty eight and Mark what thirty six. And if, if they hadn't you know broken their bodies down to where they still look that good and can do that shit at this point, they had years more left. But it, isn't it, that amazing? They were there at the very beginning of Ring of Honor. When, we, when you think about that early class of Ring of Honor stars, Danielson, Samoa Joe, Punk, AJ Styles, whoever you think about, they're all either in their early 40s or getting up there. They're still in their 30s. Jay Briscoe was not even 40 yet. I mean, what an incredible career for someone not even 40. Well, and you know, and and we'll talk about this tweet in a second, but I don't want to act like they never went anywhere but fucking Ring of Honor. They've been to Japan and they've worked a number of independents, but a lot of the reason, and especially during the Sinclair era, and they eventually worked up to where for the few years that Sinclair was willing to spend some money, I believe they were doing all right. But it, it at some points, they liked the Ring of Honor contract because they had a landscaping business and they worked on the legitimate family chicken farm. And they, in sometimes they didn't want to go to Japan or they turned down maybe some opportunities to do other things because they didn't want to be away from the family that long for that. And they, they liked working for ring of honor with their friends and also being based out of home and having a lot of time at home for their other businesses and their family, they 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 weren't concerned. Unless, I mean, I'm sure it would be lovely, but they they weren't in all all cases more concerned about where's the money, where's the money, rather than where's my where does my family fit in, and you know how can I contribute here the best? And they knew that they were important to Ring of Honor, like Ring of Honor was important to them. You know, and on that topic, you brought up Mickey Mantle before, and it's not a perfect comparison, but if you look at Ring of Honor history, the early days with Gabe and Feinstein, the Carrie Silken era, into the Sinclair era, into Tony Khan, they're the glue. And Mickey Mantle did something that's one of the most romanticized things to do in baseball, 
because it rarely happens anymore especially, he wore one uniform his whole career. Just the Yankee uniform. It's painful sometimes to see Babe Ruth in his last days as a player wearing a Boston <laughs> Braves uniform. And in a sense, like you brought up, it's a shame they didn't get that WWE opportunity. But on the other hand, it's not like their work in Ring of Honor wasn't great. And we did get an incredible body of work that's consistent. From beginning to end, there's a story there with Ring of Honor and the Briscoes. Like I said, they're the glue of Ring of Honor. You know, I and I I actually, until you made the baseball analogy, which I wouldn't have thought of, yeah, you know, that is where can you find any other, I guess, single wrestler or tag team entity, whatever, that's started and finished. And obviously, Mark's not finished, but you know what, as the tag team, the Briscoe started and finished in one company, even though through several different administrations and grew with that and went from, you know, pimply faced teenage kids to the best in the business at what they were doing. That's amazing. They didn't get the WWE opportunity. And of course we talked and I encourage people to go check out the YouTube channel. We talked about the tweet recently because there was the story that there was an executive with Warner Brothers Discovery who did not want them on any programming because of that tweet. And I want to say, I think I saw Sean Ross Sapp tweet out earlier. It's amazing they wouldn't let him on the air for something so many years ago that he has apologized for, yet the show after Dynamite was a man who just slapped his wife, hosting well, a show I, with people slapping each other. Yes. And did and did you see did you see also that it's being stated that they they taped after Dynamite last which is last night was is the Thursday morning as we record this. But after Dynamite last night, they taped a tribute to Jay Briscoe that will air on the Ring of Honor Honor Club and and kudos to Tony for doing that. But the reporting was also accompanied by that they uh, were not allowed to make the Dynamite show a tribute to Jay Briscoe like they had done to Brody Lee by the same unnamed TBS or Warner Brothers Discovery executive. Did you see that? I did see that. And, you know, I'm going to, we're just two friends talking here, letting people listen. I'm not proud of this, but I did have the thought. Tuesday night, that executive, if that decision hadn't been made, who knows if he would have been there? Who knows if he would have flown out that night to go to Dynamite? And I, I regret, uh, you know, I'm saying that out loud just because it has been eating me up a little bit thinking about all that. And I want to talk about the tweet, but let me mention this. The wrestler Effie, who we've talked about a little bit in the past, does over-the-top stuff. He's openly gay. and his character, obviously, is also openly gay and does some explicit sexual stuff at times that's not for our taste. But here's what he tweeted out. Jay Briscoe showed me respect and love when everyone told me he wouldn't. If you knew Jay, you knew he would uplift everyone in that locker room regardless of whatever world they came to wrestling from. The best. Rest easy, brother. And I think... It's important to anyone still holding on to anything from that tweet. It was regrettable. It was ignorant. And there's no signs of anything after that point that shows that this was a hateful guy. And, and like, you I, know, like well, I said, and the, the thing with the executive has been bothering me just because, you know, I hate that. 
I've been thinking a lot about it, and I have. And uh, but anyway, back to you. Well, and but we talked about it when we, as you said, we talked about the tweet earlier in a previous show. <sighs> Besides the fact that he apologized for it uh, over and over, and uh, it, it, you can see the type of person he is, and that everybody felt he was. It hit at that point, and I'm not going to go on a soapbox about this, but one of the comments he made was, he said, I was crusading for the Lord back then. Indoctrination of religious beliefs can damage people's perceptions in some cases, that's all I'll say, and it was also hitting him with his kids because the whole gay marriage thing was at the crux of it because that was being discussed and what does jay care more about than anything else in life his kids and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his kids that are told to him will happen by the fucking authority figures or whatever the fuck that he was listening to on the news so past all that i i've i've got to admit now i rescind Everything I said about, well, is this really a unnamed Warner Brothers executive or is this jealousy on the part of some of the EVPs, but not even they in this situation could be that fucking asshole-ish of assholes that, that you know, before I do, oh, maybe it's jealousy, but no, now they would certainly not in this situation stand in the way of anything. So this legitimately has to be that some unnamed piece of shit who I would love to get the name of, and I promise you, if anybody can tell me his name, I'll tell a million people real fucking quick. I can promise you that. But whoever this fucking guy is that has never said anything wrong. You don't know. Or girl, I'm sorry. Executive or executive tress that has never said anything bad or done anything wrong or said anything regrettable in public or it is perfect in every way who works for a network that has never had a convicted felon on the wrestling program nick gage who has never had a convicted felon not only a bank robber now a rapist mike tyson past the wrestling program if we're doing criminal background checks on everybody, let's uh, go to the rest of the programming. You just mentioned the network that doesn't air a television program from documented wife slapper Dana White about a bunch of mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging fucking meatheads slapping a piss out of each other over and over until one of them gets brain damage and the other one wins less cash prizes than I get selling comic books in a month. They don't do that. I don't even watch any of the rest of these goddamn shitty programs that TBS and TNT broadcast these days, or I'm sure I could find some things wrong with people on them too. So how fucking cretinous of a goddamn inhuman piece of shit, slime from the puddle of ooze of the fucking pits of hell, do you have to be unnamed woman or man? that would not even let them show highlights and tributes to a guy who got killed taking his kids to cheerleading practice because of a mean fucking tweet 
fuck you. I'd goddamn double dog dare somebody in the sound of my voice or the fucking reach of this show to find out that name. And I promise you, I will broadcast it to the goddamn world along with any contact info that I can find out. And I would love the motherfucker to sue me. But in the meantime, why don't everybody write TBS and TNT and go, hey, fuck you. What kind of fucking pricks you employing over there now that I think about it? But anyway, yeah, that's uh, apparently now I can absolve the young bucks of any jealousy responsibility for this. It apparently really is some piece of shit that ought to be drug across goddamn razor blades and dipped in a vat of alcohol. But let's get back to this. You know, the last year, everyone's been raving about FTR, and rightly so. It's easy to forget at times that there was another team in those three matches in Ring of Honor. They didn't just hold their own. They're as good as oh, anyone. Yeah. And I think we, because FTR gets all the attention, because of all the backstage drama and everything that everyone well, knows at is least happening. Every, at least every once in a while, the company they work for does put them on television. So they get a little more attention. But yes, I mean, it, it, it's not even close that their best matches, both teams' best matches were with each other. But yes, you, FTR couldn't do that with anybody else because if they could, they'd have done it with somebody else. And they've, they've had different kinds of matches, but not, not that, not the essence of wrestling. You know, it's weird. You know, I've been thinking so much lately about mortality, just with everything I've gone through with my father. And, you know, you start thinking about things like your family, your kids, how are you going to take care of them? And, oh, my God, what happens if, you know, everyone, you know, if everyone's out and something happened? You know, you start thinking about all these things. And, you know, I think it's so tough when it's an auto accident. And there's been a few occurrences in wrestling history where... You know, not to say that, like, the drug deaths and all these different deaths aren't bad, but when it's someone who, again, just won the tag team titles, just had three amazing matches, one will probably win match of the year somewhere, and that's the last we see of them. I mean, you know, there is something really, you know, like Moondog Maine, they just announced on TV one day, oh, yeah, he died in a car accident, and you never see him again. It's just, it's something... I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't have the, the exact words. I think yeah. you know what I'm saying. But the car accident in wrestling is just an extra painful one, I think. Well, see, that, honestly, that used to be, before steroids became a thing, that used to be the expected manner of death that wasn't old age for a wrestler. If I mean, when I first got into business, I mean, it's not everybody sat down and said, okay, kid, now you're probably going to die in a car wreck. But no, just from history and just from hearing guys' stories and just from what happened and being around, you knew that it, it, if you didn't die of old age or something, you know, reasonably close to of some ill health, you were gonna, it was a car wreck because that's how wrestlers died because they were always in fucking cars. Is that but, in an offshoot of that, Bobby Shane in a private plane, same concept. Not most of the guys could afford the plane. And, to you know, to the point where one of the first things I remember, you know, when I had just first got the photography job in Louisville was Sam Bass, Pepe Lopez, and Frank Hester. And that led to, you know, the guys talking about shit. And, you know, and it, it, that was 
because guys didn't OD back then and nobody had a heart attack when they were 40 because nobody had been on steroids and blah, blah, blah. So, but you were literally every day of, of your life in a car for two, three, four, five hundred 500 miles or more. And uh, remember, I figured out I've been in a car since I got into wrestling and most of it driving, but in a car, uh, two million miles, give or take however much. And, you know, something's bound to happen, which is why I completely do not miss any of it and don't even drive across town anymore. Because you never know about these fucking morons. But that that used to be the thing that would happen unless, you know, uh, as I said, it was old age or nearabouts. But that's all changed because now nobody, not a lot of guys drive. And there's no territories and everything's changed. But, and all the other things that they've done in the intervening years. Well, this is uh, just, it's just a heartbreaking, just everything with, you know, his kids and just the whole thing is heartbreaking. And I really, uh, and, the, you know, I don't know if you saw this, this, another kick in the gut. The next day was Mark Briscoe's birthday. Oh, no. Yeah. <sighs> I, <sighs> I well, I don't. <sighs> well, anyway, I I don't. Uh, I'm sure I'll think of something else I should have said at some point. Um, but what? How are you going to remember your time around the Briscoes? Well, I just, again, I mean, it's not like I didn't like everybody else. I'm not trying to say that but they they were my favorites i think i just you know the the not only to have them working there but also because they were always happy and you know and always into something or whatever the fuck and trying to help and and uh you know that and i just i enjoyed not only working with them and being around them but the fact that they had gotten you know so good from from Humble origins. And that and that's why I've been a proponent over the last couple of years. What the fuck? Their their time, you know, is not I don't want to didn't want to say that. It wasn't that their time was running low, but that their peak athletic years, I was so hoping they'd get to be on a national television program where a lot of people could see them and they could be themselves and Obviously, in WWE, that would be all fucked up, and it would be like putting the goddamn Diaz brothers in Holiday on Ice or something. You know, it just wouldn't fit, but in AEW, they could have done their shit. And, you know, so I've just, I've been pulling for that because I was afraid that it, you know, might not get a chance to transpire. And apparently, again, because of the unnamed executive that I'd love to fucking get a finger on. But, uh, you know, that's, I, I've, again, personally and professionally, and how can, from everybody else's reaction, apparently I'm not alone. How could you dislike these fucking guys? It was impossible. Well, we send our best wishes and our positive vibes to the family, and hopefully we see Mark Briscoe again wrestling at some point in the future, but... With that, we'll be right back with more drive through after this short commercial timeout. All right, we got a, a couple things at the start of the program we, we got to do. And the first thing I wanted to recognize, I don't know whether you've heard about this, Brian, but I wanted to recognize Eddie Cheslock passed away 
this past week, I think on, on Tuesday or Wednesday. And Eddie Cheslock, for those of you who might not be familiar, was a photographer from the Richmond, Virginia area, the Crockett Territory. But he was a fan going back to the 70s of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling and had been there at, at in Richmond and at the Coliseum and Norfolk, Hampton, all the spot shows around there and had seen every great star and every great match they ever put on in that part of the country. Um, I, I knew he had been in, he had some health issues over the last couple of years, but I'd seen him. He was, like I said, a photographer and a fan going back to when he was a little kid in Virginia, but he was a fixture in recent years on the, you know, the fan fest out that way. We did one in Richmond when we did the Midnight Express uh, 35th anniversary in 2000, what was it, 18? And and I saw him last time I was at the Charlotte reunion just a few years ago before pandemic and retirement. Um, and just what a nice guy. Uh, what a, just always happy and always smiling and a wrestling encyclopedia and aficionado and again incredible amounts of pictures he'd taken a lot of you've seen pictures that eddie took if you were a either a fan then uh, in the 80s 90s or uh or have collected old magazines the richmond coliseum had that red brick wall the right before the guys would go out the entrance way and that's where Eddie would be stationed, and he'd take and and he uh, took several pinup magazine pinups of the midnight and I when we had the world tag team title and U.S. tag team title belts in front of that red brick wall. That's an Eddie, and then uh, he took some others in in uh, uh, Norfolk. It was it was like a, a concrete tunnel. <laughs> so if, if you saw guys just standing in front of just concrete, uh, but his pictures were always good. But anyway, I just I just hated to hear about that. And uh, you know, again, he was a fan there going back to, you know, the seventies and had seen so many great matches in that part of the country when mid Atlantic wrestling was hot in the seventies and you know, that's the thing that Carolinas and Virginia it was like Memphis in that you know, if you were a kid, if you were if you were a little boy between eight and 18, I guess, then that's medium-sized boys and larger boys. Chances were like one in two or one in three you were a wrestling fan. So you could talk to everybody at school about it, or you could, you know, talk to anybody at the fucking mall or the gas station or whatever about what Wahoo and Valentine were doing. And it was just accepted. But uh, but anyway, so we send our condolences and our sympathy out to Eddie. I think Dave Lane uh tweeted about it and i haven't heard too much uh, too many other details but uh if anybody knows anything more about it you know let us know what happened exactly did you ever meet eddie did you you don't you never went to a lot of the carolinas fan fest never met him obviously i knew who he was we covered this on the wrestling news this week i first saw bill after tweeted something or actually put on facebook i think a message about eddie so word got around this week a lot of people talking about him yeah, he had, uh, Bill's magazines obviously used a bunch of his stuff. And I mean, he was still taking pictures at the fan fest like crazy and had massive albums and everything. Obviously, again, I've, uh, a kindred spirit because I was doing the same thing uh, that he was doing at approximately the same age, I think. 
Um, well, before we go any further, we should mention that um, we lost, actually, we lost two people in wrestling business this last week. Uh, Sodbuster Kenny J, the one of the most famous AWA jobbers, along with uh, Jake the Milkman Milliman, he passed away this past week. I never met him, never met Kenny J, and his heyday was mostly back in the 70s and early 80s before a lot of people even you know, had video, home video to see the AWA TVs or whatever. So he was primarily a Midwestern name, but, um, th- but he re- just hated sod. He just couldn't, yes. couldn't deal with sod. <laughs> no, because he was, that was the deal. Like Jake Milliman, I think was a milkman and apparently they said he's sod buster is another word for farmer. But, uh, my friend Dale Spear knew him and said that he was a great guy, Kenny J and he could actually wrestle if he wanted to, but he was one of those guys that, you know, spent his time putting people over on a part-time basis. But there was a, uh, a, a newspaper article that somebody retweeted this morning and shit, I can't remember who it was, but I retweeted it because he was mentioned. They were when Jesse Ventura was governor of Minnesota, they were having some kind of debate in the state legislature or whatever. And it it was the headline was one of the lawmakers says it was Tim Pawlenty. I saw this. Oh, did you say, okay? instead of getting the crusher of all bills, we got the Kenny Sodbuster J of all bills. (laughs) And in Ventura, said, hey, I seem to remember that. Sodbuster pin crusher one time. No, he didn't. He never, <laughs> never ever did that. But, but he would, that was where these guys got to be like kind of local cult figures. And they were remembered by people years and years later, as our, you know, previous topic says nobody does anymore. The second person was, and this came as a surprise to me, and I still don't have any particulars on the cause, but uh, Leaping Lanny Poffo. And uh, better known to the WWF fans of the, what, 80s as the genius. But Lanny, uh, um, again, was always kind of a health fanatic and worked out. I last saw him at, I guess, with the Charlotte Fan Fest would have been four years ago, maybe five years ago, whatever. Probably the last one that I went to, I believe. Um, and he looked great. And I think he was 68 years old. Um, you know, I, uh, I want to say that then I, maybe I've talked to him on the phone. No, I tell a lie. I saw him there in Charlotte, probably 2018 ish. Talked to him on the phone in 2019, I believe. And, uh, you know, so we had, we had not heard he was in any ill health or anything. Don't know what was going on. But the thing that surprised me was he'd been living in Ecuador for the past few years. And you mentioned that you'd seen something, maybe his new wife or fiance, financier, or whatever, uh, had family there, but I didn't know he was at Ecuador, but I, I hated to hear that. Lanny was a nice guy. Nobody had anything bad to say about him. And you know, one of those guys, he was probably more of a character outside the ring than he was inside the ring. And that might be saying something, but, um, he is the first guy that I ever saw, and to my knowledge, I don't know, can anybody, I'm sure somebody in Lucha or Mexico, maybe the Guerrero family, but the first person in American wrestling I ever saw do a moonsault. And because Leaping Lanny, Lanny was very gymnastic. 
And that's back when that was not something you really needed to do or anybody did in wrestling. Of course, he was, what, 6'2 or 6'3 and 220 or 30 pounds and had a really good upper body and et cetera. So when he was doing cartwheels and backflips off the top rope and whatever, it it still fit in with the wrestling of the time. Because you're like, wow, he's a big guy he's doing that shit. And he was a baby face predominantly in the ICW days to counteract his brother, Randy Savage. And then, um, did how much of the old ICW tapes have you seen, the TVs? I've seen most of what's out there. I don't even know. But I don't know how much of what's out there is the overall, whatever, four-year run or whatever. Right. Well, and see, there's not... I don't even have uh, the early stuff on video because, well, they came on the air before I got my first VCR, so somewhere in 1979. That was right after the Poffos had come back from working for who? Al Zink in Nova Scotia or wherever. It's crazy. He broke in in the middle of a wrestling war in Georgia. Yes. They were always kind of on, you know, in the middle of where there was a wrestling war going on. Uh, but uh, the the story was Angelo Poffo, who had been involved as a top heel and also an investor in Phil Golden's All-Star Wrestling that had tried to do Southern Illinois and Western Kentucky and Paducah, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, that area, and had expanded across into trying to run against Nick Goulas's towns in 73-74, but they were really Jarrett's towns, but Louisville and Evansville and et cetera. Um, Angelo tried to do the same thing with his own company because the the Poffos were from Illinois and Southern Illinois, that Harrisburg area down there and, and, uh, the entire Phil Golden area, something he was interested in. It was an offshoot of his home and they tried to do the same thing and joined with Ronnie Garvin, Bob Roop, Boris Malenko, and who am I leaving out? Uh, Bob Root, Boris Blanco, Ron Bob Garvin, Orton, Bob Orton Jr., Ron Wright. Well, Ron Wright, but Bob Orton Jr. specifically, the four guys, Ron Wright never worked ICW. No, but remember, before ICW started, the Poffos came down to work All-Star in Knoxville right. with those guys. Well, that, that's where I was going with this. For the purpose of this exercise, though, when Angelo had started ICW, because they were already outlaws, they were coming down to help the guys in Knoxville, but they absorbed when the Knoxville outlaw promotion didn't last long, they absorbed Orton, Garvin, Malenko, and Roop. And, and that Ron just didn't, wasn't interested enough to come to Lexington and do their whole thing up here and in that end of the territory. But anyway, the point was, Lanny was the top babyface for Angelo, and Randy was the top heel, and at the time, nobody knew they were brothers. And because they were so completely different the only thing that would give it away was the deep voice they both had the deep voices but since they were so completely opposite you had to be get to the level of the you know the local hanger on bell ringer smart fan or whatever level to know that they were related and you know garvin and roop and orton and malenko malenko didn't didn't stay long and I, as i recall he just moved back to florida and retired Roop and, and uh, 
Garvin stayed longer than the the most of them. Roop and Orton ended up leaving after what two years and and getting a spot with Watts. And Garvin was there for quite a while and finally left and I think went to work for Ole in Atlanta. But you could tell that Lanny and Randy were the guys obviously Angelo depended on and even and no and Angelo was the miser under a hood because he didn't want to be, as old as he was then he didn't want anybody to see his face and also the, to know that he was Lanny's father. So when the show first went on the air in Lexington, they had done a marathon taping at uh, the old Channel 62, now it's Channel 36, in their studio, and Rip Rogers was just breaking in at that point. He had worked a little bit for Nick Goulas and had met Randy and Lanny because they'd been working down there, and Randy taught Rip, you know, a majority of what he knew about wrestling at that point. and. Past that, and the guys from Knoxville, it was kind of, you know, Doug Vines and Jeff Sword were these, uh, you know, outlaw guys. There was no independence outlaw guys at the time from Eastern Kentucky and a guy named Big Boy Williams. And later on, they'd get Pez Watley, but they didn't have him right there. So it was a Hoot kind Gibson. of Gibson. They had a Hoot Gibson. They had an actual Hoot Gibson. And boy, he was about five foot six and tubby. And he was a guy from East Tennessee that could, get them some towns and <laughs> but it was a motley assortment of of talent you had these you know international superstars in Roop and Garvin and Orton and Malenko and then you had one of the best wrestlers in the world Randy Savage that nobody almost had ever heard of and then you had underneath guys it was fucking brutal and of course every once in a while they'd find somebody Crusher Broomfield became the one man gang and you could tell at the start, you know, he was something. But the TV show, when they first did a, the ta- the first taping to go on the air, they did like eight hours, eight one hour shows in the same day. And not only did they do the old deal where they had a backdrop with like shaded figures painted on it, like for the audience, but they couldn't even fill up two rows in the studio. So they had the underneath guys and the job guys put on coats and hats and go sit in the second row and fucking just clap and keep their heads down. So they had a crowd, but they put this and it came on Saturday nights at 1130, which was almost about the time that the station went off the air back in those days. But where I was going with all this was if you overlooked the most low budget presentation, especially at the start you've ever seen, and this 20 fans maybe in the studio and the you know the the announcer that they had usually didn't really know too much about wrestling but there's Randy Savage having matches with Ronnie Garvin or Randy and Lanny I think they did a deal I'm pretty sure it was the whole hour where they did a ICW World Heavyweight Title match in front of 15 people in the studio and aired it on at that time, like three stations late at night where Lanny and Savage went an hour and it was fucking because they were doing more advanced in ring stuff than a lot of people were doing at that point in time. And you didn't get main event matches on TV. And I know some people would say, well, a main event in a fucking phone booth, but this was again, Randy Savage. So, you know, there was moments of sublime 
you know, wow, this is fucking great wrestling on that show and moments of this is the cheesiest booking and the most low rent job guys and the most haphazard production you've ever seen in your life. But it was, a, and then they got a little bit better the second and third year as a television show. But the first ones, man, I wish I had tapes of some of those. It was insane. But Lanny, again, doing the moonsaults and the high drop kicks and stuff, but he was a, he was a nerdy baby face because he was the classic white meat, you know, baby face that didn't curse or smoke or drink or thing. He, he would be the guy drinking the milk and opposite a guy like Randy Savage, who was starting to, for the fans in Eastern Kentucky, and the, they did do some, some business down in the mountain towns in Eastern Kentucky when Southeastern was out of business and Jarrett didn't go over that far. They probably drew better houses in places like Combs and Manchester than they did in Lexington and Frankfurt. But the young guys were starting to get behind Randy Savage, kind of like the free bird effect that, that it would have in Dallas a few years later. This was 1979-1980. But Savage was so fucking... He, he was coming out still doing kind of the same interviews. It's just there was no budget to it, which made him seem even more like a fucking madman. He wouldn't come out and have this sequined, you know, macho man robe and Elizabeth, and he'd be spinning around. He'd come out in goddamn whatever he wore to the station that day, which looked like what he fucking slept in for the past three days. And he'd go, Ooh, macho man, dig it. And he'd pull a fucking handful of confetti out of his own jacket pocket and throw it up over his own head. And, you know, but you thought he was fucking insane. And then here was Lanny was the opposite of that, was the soft-spoken and, you know, deep voice, but articulate baby face that's going to right a wrong. And it was, it was, it was some interesting shit. Possibly over-articulate, if you actually want fans to... Possibly over-articulate, yes, because he would he would run off and leave them sometimes, because Lanny was a very smart guy. But anyway, and then, you know, later on when they made up with Jarrett and Lanny was a heel because he was with Randy and, and they were doing a thing with Lawler, but, and then, of course, you know, the genius, the poetry was all his. That was kind of, you know, it was a very true-to-life gimmick. And I saw people tweeting, you know, the the Frisbees and everything that uh, he would have the poem on it and he'd sign the Frisbee and then sail it out into the crowd after he read it. I'm sure now people be calling Stephen P. New was fucking putting some kid's eye out. But uh, and as I mentioned, I'd seen him in, in Charlotte and talked to him on the phone. He is the one I found out. Mary Furpo, Mary Freeze, that is Pampiro Furpo's daughter, big fan of the show, had never met her and didn't know about it. And Lanny had called me out of the blue one day and said, I, I want you to know, Jim, that she's she's a wonderful person. She's not a stalker, but I didn't want to give her your information without asking your permission. I said, no, please. And, and I said, who gave it to you, Lanny? Yeah, no, come on now. Um, I did say, I actually said, how did you get my name? No. Um, but anyway, so, so uh, I just, anyway, I hate to hear that. So now all three Poffos are gone. And that's, that's a pretty heavy family. That's a pretty crazy thing. Again, I mean, it was only three of them, but there's been a Poffo in or around wrestling for 70 years. And now, yep, that's it. And, well, think about this. 
Angelo started out uh, in his career. He was on the Dumont Network broadcasts, and Randy Savage not only ended up being on network television, NBC, whatever, uh, 35 years later, but you since they put him, you know, he's all of the home video and all of the blah, 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 he's seen now in more play Randy Savages in more places than you could almost see wrestling, even though not as many people are watching it, it's available everywhere. So there's been some member of the family on television or being able to be seen by the public all that time. And, and you know, it's the profile is bigger now than it ever was. I wonder what happens to Randy's, I don't know if a state would cover it, but you know, the, all the issues where they license out the Randy Savage stuff. So it's beyond just WWE. I could be wrong, but I think they were dealing with Lanny. Well, but at the same time, I get Randy was married. So at That's the time, true. That's true. that he passed away. So there would be somebody to still have control over it or whatever. Even I mean, it would probably have gone to his wife anyway, but I'm sure Lanny was the spokesperson for whatever. But anyway, the, um, the noted humorist Scott Cornish and me were texting about it the other day. Noted humorist? The, the wrestling humorist Scott Cornish, and he actually summed up my thoughts with this text. My reaction to Lanny Poffo's passing has been, in this order, surprise, sadness, wildly inappropriate humor. Rest in peace, Lee the Gladdy. And I have to admit, because that is part of the story, just because so many people, he even enjoyed talking about it. Well, wait, Alan Blackstock on Twitter posted a bunch of Lanny's poems from, I think, the WWF years, and I found myself reading them to myself and ending everyone the same way with, also, I suck my own dick. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I and I think a lot of other people did that, too, because it's a funny part of the Lanny Poffo story. No, go ahead and say it, because you got to say it the right way. He has the greatest quote of all time. When people, he said, people ask me if I'm gay. No, the only penis I've ever had in my mouth is my own. See, I didn't even know that and, was the line he used, actually. Yes. <laughs> and because it's true. And the thing is, and that is, when you got close around the wrestling back in the early 80s, you would hear this story. Because Lanny not only was a, a gymnast, but it was very flexible and was flexible. And Here, to watch. To entertain, you know, various people either in the locker room or, you know, whatever, wherever the case may be, at, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs, wherever the <laughs> thing yeah, came where? up. He always said it was an old parlor trick. What well, parlor? Yeah. What well, parlor are people doing this trick in? <laughs> in a number of parlors. Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, used to know a girl in Dayton that was amazed by it. Always would request to see it, but Man, nevertheless. I, I am so bored in this locker room. Does anyone have a deck of cards? Shit, I left the cards somewhere. Does anyone well, have a, a comic book or a magazine? Oh, no, no one has anything. Oh, wait a minute. Watch this. <laughs> oh, shit, there's Lanny blowing himself. <laughs> and said... And, it, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this next day. It was really amazing because it wasn't like you could maybe understand if it was Virgil or Robert Fuller. 
But while while he was not shortchanged by nature, it was more of the 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 element of the flexibility rather than the extension of the. It's not how big you are; it's how much you can bend it half and suck your it's, own. Yes, it's 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 it was he could, you know, because you're bending there not at the waist, but you're. It's sort of almost an unnatural direction that the spine has to go. To. But we are definitely sorry to hear about yes. the, uh, no, and I, I kid, I never had any issues with Lanny and we were always very friendly. So I hate to hear about this, but I guess that'll teach you to move to Ecuador. I don't know what he was the picture of health. Hey, how different do you think his career would have been? Whether you like the gimmick or not, he was the guy for it. If he had come in as the genius versus coming in as leaping Lanny, throwing Frisbees, kind of getting beat everywhere. Yeah. And then he became the genius. Well, it probably would have helped because again, and I guess a lot of people may not even remember that they did bring him in. And of course, cause Savage is on top. I'm sure, you know, Pat Patterson would, would, would have known Angelo for years and Lanny, just as leaping Lanny Poffo, the baby face in 1985 or six or whatever it was in the WWF was not going to get over because he was way too white bread, you know, nerdy baby face, territorial kind of baby face. But it, he had when, none of the qualities you want in a baby. He was like, I wear a suit of armor. <laughs> well, no, but, <laughs> but no, that was after he didn't, they didn't send him out there in a suit of armor at first <laughs> that, you know, but that's what I'm saying is then they decided, well, we'll make him the genius or a heel or the, you know, the pompous fellow uh, afterwards. And he probably would have got more heat if he hadn't been, been beaten around the horn but in in a lot of cases he took heat because he got jobs because of you know randy but they didn't necessarily because he might get hired because of randy they didn't necessarily put the effort into his booking or his presentation or his gimmick that they would have if it if they'd have just hired him and he could have done a better job with it he was kind of pigeonholed in the, in the middle. How long was he on the WCW payroll? Remember, they were going to bring him back as Gorgeous George. There are photos out there of him with blonde hair because Randy owned oh, the yeah. IP for Gorgeous George. And then he just got paid for years and they never used him. Well, Robert, Lanny was a bleach blonde heel for the Sheik in 70, what, five or six, though. So th- th- he had experience with the uh, the hair bleaching. But at that point, yeah, that he's one of the people that got a job from WCW just to 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 breathe and go to the mailbox but at that by that time he'd been in the business for fuck 20 years i don't blame him for just wanting to sit home if they were willing to send him a check at that point well we uh send our sympathies to the family and friends of leaping lanny poffo well we know he had friends but we've just established does he have any family left for heaven's sake uh judy their mother's passed away here not too long ago angelo's been gone Randy, etc. There were maybe well, somebody will have to call uh, uh, Gorgeous George the uh, the valet and see if she can carry on the name. <laughs> I don't know if that'd be the pick. There may be some heat. Yeah, there. Wait, a little heat. Let's get things going right away by talking about the news that has broken over the last day: the passing of Jerry Jarrett with this man, the leader of the cult of Cornette, the star of the drive-through, Mister Jim Cornette. Well, you've. You and I have been engaging 
in a little silliness right before we went on the air, trying to get motivated to do this in the proper way. And it didn't, it didn't hurt that you blew the first take of your intro three words in and had to do it again. That gave me a chuckle. But again, we are sitting here, you know, having to, for unfortunate reasons, talk about somebody that we've talked about many times in the past and their contributions to the business and et cetera, but focusing on, you know, somebody else that we've just lost. And I mean, this wasn't, it wasn't one of those things like uh, the Jay Briscoe, the suddenness and the, you know, I mean, uh, I was not aware that Jerry was even sick and he just did the tales from the territories shoot last, uh, I guess they shot that last summer, which aired in the fall and, and, you know, uh, uh, spoke to Evan Husney at, at, you know, uh, dark side. And he said that he was, you know, great and seemed like, and he looked like Jerry has for the last however many years, but he was 80 years old. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the cause was. It's been not even 24 hours since we heard this. And there's people that I could have called, but to be honest, I'm, tired of calling people asking about what was wrong with people when they passed away. So I just haven't done that yet. Point is it happened. And, uh, as I was going to say, it wasn't like, you know, the situation with Jay where it just came out of nowhere and a guy, you know, with his kids in the car down the road from the house. But, you know, it, it, uh, it we are starting to, again, realize how many of the great personalities in whatever field in wrestling or managing or promoting or booking or whatever that, you know, that aren't with us anymore. And this is why, you know, Jerry was, he was the youngest owner of a territory at one time, which is why he's pretty much one of the last, the last one does ones to go. Uh, can you think, excepting Vince McMahon, who's still around as we know, was he the next most important, most successful wrestling promoter still alive? Some people might say Bill Watts, but he was truthfully not a promoter as long, nor he had a hotter period, but for longevity, he wasn't as successful as Jerry and in multiple locations. Anyway, your thoughts. I'd hate to argue over who was more important. Uh, you know, that's a bigger discussion. Right. But in terms of success, especially considering the period of time and success as both a promoter and a booker, because you have to separate them because he started as a booker before he was the promoter. So I think you do have to separate that. The other ones who were still alive, Ron Fuller, obviously Southeastern, Vince McMahon, like you mentioned. There aren't too many. I mean... It's one of these moments where you stop and you think, yeah, the territories have been gone a long time. And Jerry, and this is why I always recognize Jeff Jarrett and uh, because it ran in the Jarrett family. And as we'll, we'll probably talk about from where Jerry learned booking and promoting, it ran in the Welch family. They wanted to, to run towns, to start territories, to open territories to open towns to book talent 
rather than just concentrating on just being wrestlers and or just in their home market. Uh, and that's why I said, Jeff, who else, you know, people, uh, you know, global force didn't go. Well, who else started a global force? And before that, it was, it was Jeff and Jerry that started TNA. Who else started TNA? That thing's still around. Um, you know, it, it ran in the family that they had an aptitude for the wrestling business, the business of the business. And Jerry started, he always, as you said, he not only, he was a booker before he ever even wrestled, which is almost unheard of in, you know, in the territory days, especially. But Especially you know, considering his age. Well, yes, because, um, well, let's go back with, I've talked so many times about Christine Jarrett, teeny. When Jerry was three years old, I think two or three years old, that's when she got to part-time jobs selling tickets for the Goulas Welch booking office in Nashville out of a ticket window at a shoe store in downtown Nashville. Um, she needed extra money because Jerry's father after Jerry was born, and I think was it, I can't remember, Carolyn was a couple years younger, but Jerry's father had been in service in World War II. It was actually wartime. And shortly after he came home is when they were divorced and she needed extra money. So she gets the job selling tickets, you know, for the wrestling matches at the shoe store and ends up not only selling tickets at the matches, going to work in Goulas and Welch's office and then running the office. And was, she was basically the office manager. They had Nina Bond forever, but Teeny ran the, the office. Um, and then not only selling tickets at Towns, but then you know, she had Jerry selling the five-cent slamogram program at the matches in Nashville when he was seven years old in the late forties. And you've got a couple of them from that time period. They're four page newsprint foldovers and went for five cents a piece. And that was his first job in the wrestling business. And then when he was a teenager, he made extra money by promoting spot shows and, you know, putting up posters and going around town trying to get, sell ads in a program. And when he got out of school, he took it to a, you know, a little more a bigger level as far as going out and the grassroots promotion of wrestling. It used to be just like the, you know, when the county fair came to town or the carnival or fucking whatever. So. Meanwhile, I don't think people understand when we say the Goulas Welch wrestling office and people think, oh, the 60s and 70s in Tennessee. Roy Welch had been booking wrestlers out of Nashville since, what was it, either the late 30s or very early 40s. And he brought Nick Goulas up from Birmingham to use as his front man because he was still a wrestler as was were his brothers Herb and Jack and Lester and you know so by, especially in those days the promoter couldn't also be known and as you know or the booker couldn't be known that people didn't know what a booker was you couldn't be the promoter and wrestler at the same time that would look funny so Nick was the public face until Roy you know retired but 
uh, again, Roy had seen early on that the way to make money in wrestling was to have a group of guys, a group of talent that was loyal to you and to book them out to different promoters and to have a booking office. That was the difference in the days before television. That was the difference between a guy, a promoter who ran his town like Cleveland and a booking office where there was a centralized group of guys and a promoter that booked that talent out to, you know, other places. And so that's what Roy and Roy Welch had only been wrestling in the late thirties, about 10 years. But we see from some of Scott Teal's wonderful research, especially the book on the history of wrestling in Amarillo, Texas, that Roy Welch was wrestling there in, in 1930. And again, in 1932, in 32, he brought Pat Malone, the green shadow. He had him with him too. That they would later on go to to uh, you know to work together for forty fucking years, and he was learning this shit from Cal Farley and Dutch Mantell, the original Dutch Mantell, who now I found out turned pro in eighteen ninety six. So that means that Jerry Jarrett learned booking and promoting wrestling from a guy who learned from a guy who was a pro in eighteen ninety six. So the point is, that's what the, the Welch, Roy Welch set up that booking office. And even before television, Goulas and Welch booked tons of guys into different fucking places all around the Southeast. And when they gradually built that territory, especially when TV came along and it became easier to, to promote these guys in that region, it was one of the biggest geographic territories in the country, and they had more wrestlers and more towns running than almost any other territory. And the only two of the modern territories that were still under the same ownership in the television era, completely through, from beforehand, were Jim Crockett promotions in the Carolinas because of Crockett Sr. starting in the 30s, and Goulas and Welch in Tennessee, in Nashville. Every other territory, the modern territories, as they formed, they had changed hands from the pre-television era. And a guy who became a big star on national television in the early 50s, like Vern Gagne, would go home and buy his, into his own territory. Tennessee and the surrounding area and the Carolinas weathered that all through those years. So anyway, Jerry as a result of being around the office and, and teeny having worked for Roy at that point for 20 years, Jerry, you know, becomes a referee and starts riding to Memphis with Roy Welch. And again, Memphis had been an acquisition. Remember they Goulas and Welch started with Nashville and then they annexed Chattanooga. And in the early fifties, they got Birmingham from, Oh, who was the old promoter down there? Chris Jordan. Because Nick always wanted Birmingham because that was his hometown. Now he's the big deal in Birmingham wrestling. And, the, and Birmingham and Memphis both ran on Monday nights. So Nick would always go to Birmingham. And then in, what was it, 57, 58, when they finally got control of Memphis, Roy, because his family by then had settled up in Dyersburg in West Tennessee, Roy would go to Memphis every Monday. 
And he wouldn't let Nick fuck with Memphis. It was the Golden City, right? Roy would install his own bookers. His son, Buddy Fuller, when they got Memphis, he put Buddy in, in charge of booking. Or he'd send Buddy to open up a territory in Alabama if some towns were dark. Or Louisiana. Nick and Roy almost had Florida in the 40s. They sent Nick down and he ran Tampa for a while. And he was always trying to take over more territory. So. Now he's going to Memphis every Monday night in the mid-60s, and Roy was in charge of Memphis. And you could kind of tell the cards, the lineups in the newspaper were the same verbiage and the same some of the same talent and the same kind of things they'd been doing for years, right, since Roy had taken over. But it, it, the story was, and, you know, he started asking Jerry, well, what do you think? And I mean, the first time Jerry said that Roy Welch asked him what he thought, Jerry came in the office because they hadn't smartened him up yet when he was a teenager or whatever. And he said, I hate to tell you, but on the town the other night, I think two of the guys had a fake match. And Roy said, do tell. What, what, <laughs> why do you think that? Well, it just seemed to me they weren't trying very hard. So they, you know, anyway, Roy likes him and he's, he on the, they smarten him up and on the way to Memphis and back, Roy would say, well, what would you do? And Jerry would give him ideas for the Memphis cards. So finally, like, what was it? 1967, Roy announces to the boys that the new booker is Jerry Jarrett. The kid's been running those spot shows and a bunch of guys just fucking well, bullshit, and, uh, what the fuck, and, they, and he said, you dumb son of a bitches, he's been booking for the last three months, I just didn't tell you. And so at any rate... Did Jerry uh, ever forget which guys gave him a hard time? I don't think so. <laughs> Saul Weingroff, right? Isn't that the story? Well, Saul didn't do it right then, but Saul later on, and, and that story... Uh, that Jerry told me, cause I asked him, I think it was disputed by George Weingaroff from what I heard, but nevertheless, the story goes that when Jerry opened up the Northern end up here, which we'll get to in a second, that Saul wanted to be booked in Bowling Green, which was an hour from Nashville instead of Lexington on Thursday nights, Kentucky, which was four hours back then. And cause Bowling Green was outdrawing Lexington and Jerry heard about it. I said, all right. And so then later on, when Lexington was outdrawing Bowling Green, Saul goes up to him, well, why ain't I booked in Lexington? He said, I heard you don't want to be booked in Lexington, and I intend to honor your request for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and then Saul was up. But I think there was some heat with Nick, too, at that point. Uh, but anyway, that's so that's what happened is Jerry starts booking Memphis. And he's 25 years old, and I don't know if he had actually even refereed at that point. But I think they may have said, well, he's got to get in the ring and have some perspective on that. So he started refereeing. And then the story, well, you know, one night, same as happens with a lot of guys, somebody didn't show up on a spot show and they were short a guy and they said, well, you, go, you need to work. What? And they put a hood on him. And then later on, I think he realized, well, you know, I not only, I can, I can probably get over because he was young when all the baby faces in the Tennessee territory were older. You know, Eddie Marlin, 
who Jerry helped tremendously and booked and, you know, became his father-in-law. But Jackie Fargo, who Jerry kind of gave a renaissance to because Fargo had been, he'd been in Memphis so long at one point, he just kind of was expected to be there. And he was up and down the card in the mid late sixties. And he had a, you know, lounge in Memphis and a sign painting business. He got Lawler involved with, but Jerry remembered the fabulous Fargos and how much, you know, they got over with him seeing them walk in the building, you know, when he was fucking, when he was a teenager, he was a teenage boy. So the fabulous Fargos were over with him. They're like the road warriors of their day. So he, repushed and repackaged Jackie Fargo into the fucking legend and ended up, you know, not only did uh, Jackie have a renaissance there when in the early, especially in the late 69, early 70, when Jerry really had firm control of the book, but also Jackie was on top with Al Green in the first sellout of the Mid-South Coliseum when they moved there in 1972. And Jackie Fargo had not drawn 11,000 people in Memphis in a long fucking time. So it, it had to be part of the booking and the usage, right? But at that point, he didn't have the book for, what, a year, and he was starting to look for other towns, which I have to think that was advice from Roy Welch. That was the M.O. And everybody said, okay, the... The band across what is now Interstate 64, well, I guess it was then, it was built by then, Evansville, Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, and probably at that point over into maybe Beckley, those towns were dark. That meant they weren't, they weren't being run for live events. They didn't have a local television. Bruiser had forsaken Louisville and Evansville and... uh you know, it, it it was open. So Jerry kept coming up here trying to get TV and trying to get TV. And I think he actually got Lexington, maybe even Evansville first, but eventually he got Louisville, as we've talked about in our retrospectives, to open up Louisville in June of 1970. He was on TV for, I think we figured out, 10 or 12 weeks, one or the other. And then opened up weekly live live events and ran the same building in the same town every week for the next 27 fucking years. And it, we've talked about the houses in Louisville. And, you know, Evansville was a town. I mean, bless them out there. Love the Rockabar. But that's when, by that point, Teeny was not only instrumental to the Goulas Welch office, and she was the prime ticket seller on Saturday nights and or on the any nights they ran the fairgrounds in Nashville, and all the fans loved her there. Jerry gave her half of his business in Louisville Wrestling Enterprises and these towns up here. So I know that she was definitely she was, and she did fulfill the function of promoter of these towns as when we've talked about that aspect and you can find it on the YouTube channel. She was the promoter dealing with the TV, dealing with the newspaper, dealing with the building, checking up the box office. So she predates Ann Gunkel as a wrestling promoter and, and bless her little pee picking heart. I guarantee you Ann Gunkel didn't work as hard or do as many things as Christine Jarrett did. And as far as 
female promoters in wrestling, you can point to Eileen Eaton, but she inherited the business from her husband and really passed it to be run by her son and spent more time, I understand, with the boxing in than wrestling at the Olympic. So at that point, Christine was the, if not the only, certainly the most successful, and this was before Lee Maivia, the only female promoter in the business, in the United States at least, right? Yeah, you went over the other list, and obviously there have been yeah. recent things on TV. Leah Maivia did promote, but it was much later. She wasn't the first. So, and Christine was basically promoting with Louisville and Evansville and the spot shows that she either ran Lexington, Kentucky during those years, once a month, and a spot show the other three weeks on a Thursday or oftentimes Saturday. I would say between 1970 and when she finally got off the road in, what was it, maybe 94, 95, she had run as many as 175 live events a year. She was responsible for 52 in Louisville, 52 in Evansville, at least 12 in Lexington and three other Thursdays a month. That's 36 plus some Saturdays. I remember spending many a Saturday night in Madisonville, Kentucky. So now, you know, he had set her up as partners in the promotion. So once again, because he was still wrestling the promoter couldn't also be a wrestler in the people's eyes. He did the same thing that Roy had done with Nick, but in this case, it's his mother who every one of the fans loved because she took time to talk to every single one of them. And she was a celebrity in the building, too. There goes Mrs. Jarrett. That's Jerry Jarrett's mother. And so now he's become the booker. He's started refereeing. He's looking to open up these towns. And then he becomes, before he's even 30, the top, actually, one of the three most popular baby faces in the territory and the town you were in, depending on whether he was number one, number two, or number three. He starts wrestling, and let's face it, everybody's seen Jerry. He had no, he was a good athlete in school for what that was worth, but he had no physique whatsoever. But he was young, and he had the blonde hair, and he could sell, and he understood psychology. And even if his, I mean, Jeff is a better worker than Jerry ever was from a standpoint of how the shit looked in the ring and how athletic he was and et cetera, and his physique, the whole nine yards. But at the same time, Jeff never had the chance, and most people never will again to draw the money that Jerry Jarrett did in the ring for about a four or five year period where he was working on top and he never, he never made himself the singles champion and he never, he put himself in with Lawler when he was a top single heel because he, he get heat on Lawler the way he could sell and the sympathy people had for him. He never put the belt on himself. He put tag belts on himself because that was the way that he originally made a splash in the business. He started wrestling underneath, right? And you would see his name, Jerry Jarrett, in the second match or whatever. And then on television, they would tell, start telling a story, well, he seems to be getting a little better. And then I think finally, maybe on TV, he won one time and he would do an interview every now and then where he credited 
his his mentor, his trainer, that was really helping him out and bringing him along, but nobody knew who it was. And finally, they pulled the trigger on the angle. Where and I can't even. It was before my time. This and it was Memphis TV. But the heels, whoever they fucking were, probably the interns of Ken Ramey, as I think about it now. They get on fucking Jerry Jarrett, and here comes one of the biggest heels in the territory for the past 10 years, Tojo Yamamoto, and makes the comeback. And the people are, and they reveal that he's the one, which was a shoot. He's the one that's been training Jerry Jarrett to be a wrestler. And instantly, Tojo's, and now Tojo and Jerry Jarrett are the biggest babyface tag team and against the interns, against the Von Brauners, against Don and Al Green. That uh, Tojo and Jerry is what popped Louisville. And Jerry Jarrett became, and he didn't need sometimes to bring Fargo up here for the, I don't think Fargo appeared up here for the first year because he was down in Nick's more established towns. But Jerry Jarrett became the top babyface in Louisville, Jerry and Tojo. And Fargo was the guy in Memphis, but Jerry and Tojo were the tag team. And, you know, so now he's he's one of the top fucking babyfaces, and they're selling pictures of him hand over fist because he's, like I said, he's one of the only... Tojo was not a good-looking man for the ladies, right? Even though he was over as fuck. And Fargo had his clientele, and most of them had beehives from the 50s. So here's blonde-haired, 28-year-old Jerry Jarrett, and the girls are swooning. So so he's a promoter of some of the towns. He's a booker of the, the main town in the territory and his own towns. And he's one of the top baby faces. And his mother is handling his towns for him. And, oh, and another one of the people that... Roy Welch, when he got in the ring, had work out with him, as you heard the story on Tales from the Territories, was Sailor Moran. And if you go back and look at that Amarillo book I was talking about before, Sailor Moran is one of the old-time fucking shooters that was working in West Texas in the 30s with Roy Welch. (laughs) So he knew this fucking guy because he knew that all these guys that were going to be jealous that had been... and. Even in the other end of the territory, Nick's booker, Lynn Rossi, was never a fan of the Jarrett philosophy, right? They were they were liable to try to take it out on, which Mario Galento later on would, for real, on live Memphis TV. So that's why he said, if you're going to be in the ring, you got to, Tojo will teach you how to work, and Sailor Moran will teach you how to take care of yourself. And again, the Mario Galento story, the story has changed over time based on who was telling it and when, but one of the interesting facets of it that has kind of been a universal part of the story for at least a little while is the idea that Roy Welch would have put Mario Galento up to this, considering what you just said about Sailor Moran. Well, and see, here's the thing. And a lot of people, and I saw somebody wrote a piece on the internet and mentioned, well, Jerry Jarrett beat Goulas and Welch in the promotional war. It, actually, no, Roy Welch was dead. The Galento incident happened in 1973, I believe. Maybe late 72, early 73. Roy Welch died 
couple years later, Jerry split from Nick, Goulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises, a couple years after that. We'll get into it. But toward the end of his life, Roy, they said, was potentially had Alzheimer's or whatever. And people had convinced him that Jerry was trying to steal the territory. Which, going back to guys who were in the business in the fucking teens and 20s and 30s, that's what would happen, and he may have believed it and maybe wanted to fucking do something. Who knows what the fuck? But yeah, the the Roy was Jerry's benefactor all through the years of that, and then finally, right before he died, it was suspected maybe he was the one put Mario Galento up to hitting a ring on him. But Jerry didn't steal the territory for another four years. <laughs> but he did, he actually didn't steal it if Nick had been smart and realized what was going on and what he had and just made him partner. It would have changed the course of the wrestling business and history, but he didn't. He tried to screw him, and Jerry said, well, fuck you. Because Nick had never been the one that the boys were mostly loyal to. It had been... Roy Welch, even though he was the heel behind the scenes, good cop, bad cop. He was the, the good cop in front of the fucking boys and the bad cop behind it. But most of the talent was loyal to Jerry Jarrett because he had made them money. His towns drew better. He paid better. His, you, you know, you, the TV was better. Everything was better in the Jarrett end. Even when, when Bobby Shane went to Australia and told Barnes and Dundee, Oh, you got to go to Tennessee. You guys will get over there. He said, but don't go to work for Nick. You're going to work for the little man. And, you know, that was the thing. People came even before Jerry opened his own company. People came to work for Jerry because, you know, he was getting a a reputation that he could get people over. Well, plus uh, he had the relationships. Who had a relationship yes. with Jim Barnett? Jerry Jarrett, not Nick Goulas. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, so uh, think about this now. I've just I've just given you from 67 to 72. He becomes a booker. He becomes a referee. He becomes the wrestler. He opens his own fucking towns. He's, he's running his own promotion as a satellite of the Goulas Welch office while being a top babyface and booking the biggest town in the territory, and then Barnett comes back from Australia, enticed by the NWA collective to try to win the Atlanta Wrestling War against Ann Gunkel. And I was Watts the booker when Barnett came back, or did he bring Watts in first? No, no, Watts was the booker. Watts from, was already the booker. Yeah, everything happened Thanksgiving time, 72. By early 73, Watts was already the booker, put in there by Eddie Graham. Right. So when they when they get Barnett for a piece of the office back, for a piece of for five percent, right? Ten percent, um, I think. Was, was it, 5 it okay? It was 10? ten because that's what Ole ended up with. Yeah. Anyway, so as Watts is gonna be, you know, moved out and back over to Louisiana, Oklahoma, Barnett asks for Jerry Jarrett to come and book Atlanta. Because now what's happening in that year, 1973, not only all those other things I talked about happening, but Jerry as Booker in Memphis 
has got Jerry Lawler and Jim White as his top heel tag team working a program with, uh, it was Jackie and Roughhouse Fargo, where they had either two or three sellouts of the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum two or three weeks in a row. And there was, it was a record crowd. They'd 11,000 something people one week, and then they beat it by 40 people the next week or whatever the fuck. So Barnett here, there's this kid in fucking Memphis that's booking sellouts in this building. And he's using, and Lawler at the time was 23 years old, 22, not 23. What the fuck's going on? So he brings Jarrett to be his booker in Atlanta. And so Jerry's still relying on Teeny a lot to book, to run his towns. He's booking Memphis, but now he's also booking Atlanta, which is, was basically in those days, he booked the television on TBS, TCG at that time, and the Atlanta Omni cards or the city auditorium cards, whichever week it was. And, you know, Fred Ward and Columbus and Macon, they did a lot of their own booking, but he's down there for the Omni. He's down there for the Atlanta cards. He's taken some Tennessee talent down and they're doing business down there. To the I believe Jerry said he booked the first wrestling sellout in the Omni, which was either maybe Thanksgiving 74, early 75, one of those hot programs with wrestling too, who he kind of fostered that gimmick along. It would have been 74 that he was talking about. So, and at, at the same time in 74, as we've talked about Memphis, the Coliseum for 50 shows sold 400,000 wrestling tickets. So the guy that was booking that in Memphis and Louisville wasn't doing bad either. The crowds were big in Louisville in 73 and 74. He's also booking the Omni in Atlanta. He's also winning find time to work. One of the top baby faces still in the territory here. And it was pretty much. Jerry still worked on a limited basis in the 76 and 77. I mean, wrestled in the ring and he would come back every so often. He did some things in 79 when business was down here or whatever. But by that point, he quit wrestling. He didn't have time for it. And, you know, again, we're just we're just to the mid 70s at this point. He had, like I said, relations with uh, he had relations. He had a relationship. I don't want to say that that way. <laughs> he had a relationship with Jim Barnett that lasted the rest of their lives at Barnett, you know, and he would stay in contact. And through that, he also got a relationship with Eddie Graham when Jerry finally, and we've covered the whole split with Nick in detail, and it's on the YouTube channel somewhere. But uh, when he finally split with Nick, the NWA fully supported Jerry Jarrett rather than Nick Goulas, who had been because Roy Welch had not been in the inaugural NWA class in 1948, but he joined in 49. And that had been a source of pride for Nick, even though he was not real popular in the with the rest of the NWA promoters. That he was the NWA guy all those years. It was the logo was all over the TV and the interview desk, and he'd mention it all the time, and then the, the newspaper ads. And as soon as as Jerry announced he was forming his own company. Nick couldn't get any help from anybody but the Sheik. Barnett backed up. Eddie Graham backed up. 
everybody, because they knew what was going to happen. And within six weeks, you know, Nick's out of Memphis and Jerry's <laughs> drawing seven, 8,000 people a week to Cook Convention Center. And within four years, the Sheik's out of the NWA. Well, yeah, and, and pretty much out of business. Yeah, within three years, yeah. Um, and then, you know, so when Nick pulled out, the Coliseum immediately called Jerry and said, okay, you can have all the wrestling dates now because the contract had been in Goulas Welch's name. So his first Coliseum show, April 24th, 1977, the main event, the NWA world title, Harley Race and Rocky Johnson, Southern title, Jerry Lawler against Jack Briscoe. Dusty Rhodes was on the card. Uh, guys in from Knoxville because when Jerry was split off from Nick, since Roy was dead, Jerry took his son, Buddy Fuller, as a partner and formed the Jarrett Welch Wrestling Organization. Got to keep the name Welch in there. Got to keep the name Welch in there. And the Fullers came over from Knoxville. They were going to start trading talent. Eddie Graham was in the back in the locker room because he came and Dusty was on the card. It, it, it Basically, it was like, okay, this is what we knew was going to happen, and we're going to endorse you because you're the future of, of the wrestling business in this territory. And then later, the only reason that Jerry ever left the NWA was because he couldn't get the belt for Lawler. And that was more important. So he went to the Vern, and the AWA schedule was a little lighter, and, you know, there you go. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think getting the belt on your guy should be the sole reason you're in the NWA? Or at that time, should have been the sole reason you were in the NWA? Jerry liked the NWA concept. He liked the world champion. And he was loved Luthez as a kid when he would see Luthez come in the, you know, the door of the arena with his expensive suitcase and wearing a suit. That looks like the world champion. He loved the idea of the world champion. He didn't necessarily have any loyalty to a specific endorsed world champion if it could benefit his business. He was not a proponent of rah-rah, everybody should stay in the NWA. You know, at some point in those because he was never going to be the biggest NWA territory and a lot of people still look down on Tennessee because of Nick and Roy so and a lot of time have Nick but and also cuz none of them could ever get into it so i think it it was when it became a situation where we have done such incredible business with this guy Jerry Lawler for so long but we can't let the people lose faith and they're going to, it's been over 10 years now. He, you know, when he, and he tried to create the, remember we talked about the CWA world title with superstar Billy Graham and Billy Robinson. And it, it didn't catch on. People didn't buy that as one of the big ones because they didn't see it anywhere else in the magazines and it didn't have the history, but the AWA title and Bachwinkle was such a fucking champion and such a great worker, that program got the AWA belt over in Memphis probably more than the NWA belt had had been because the NWA champion hadn't been there that often. How much of that was due to Bachwinkle? A lot of it. If it had been any other AWA champion, I don't know if it would have worked as well. No. Well, Vern, Vern actually worked a match 
on the debut AWA event in 1978. Lawler and Bockwinkel were on top, and Vern was on the card against Eddie Sullivan, and Vern would not have gotten over. If <laughs> He was a champion in 81, by the way, remember. Uh, he wouldn't have gotten over. It, it would, it, Bockwinkel, Bockwinkel could do it because he could work any style. But nevertheless, so that was, you know, that was the idea behind they had to get Lawler a, a run of some description with the world title so those people wouldn't lose faith. And the NWA, he, they tried it several times, tried it again in 82 with the, the angle with Flair, and they couldn't. He couldn't get it done. But again, you know, he still, that's the thing is that's just in the seventies and, and early eighties when, when the Von Ericks were in trouble, when Fritz was in trouble in Dallas in the late eighties, who'd he call Jerry Jarrett? Can you come down, run my business? And he, and the same thing happened in 82. First of all, remember Bruiser. Bruiser calls, hey, can you send up your talent, run my business? Uh, I'll, I got the TV slot still. He just had nobody left. Spike Huber and Steve Regal. It was it, right? And so Jarrett said yes. And then not only was the uh, the second time he went, the, the main event of the first tour on Thanksgiving weekend of a brand new fucking group of talent in an almost dead wrestling promotion, so that was a thrill, was Bruiser versus Kamala. Kamala had just started and Bruiser was about finished. And um, and then the, by the second weekend, Bruiser was trying to get by, and he beat Kamala, by the way, and he was trying to get back on the cards regularly and trying to you know, get some of his old cronies and Jared just said, never mind, just take it. Well, then in Dallas, they did go down and, and Jerry curtailed a lot of the losses and had some things moving. And wasn't that the time they put, he let Eric Embry book the thing for a while. And Well, he bought out Fritz, remember? And he was partners with Kevin and Kerry before they sold out finally. Yes. But then he couldn't control the boys. And he ended up giving it, he said, here, you guys run this fucking thing. Every time he'd pull out, everything would go to shit again. What about 83, when Watts' business is down, and he brings in Jarrett and Lawler to look at his talent? I mean, that's a, yeah. I mean, it may be a little crude what was said, but that's a great example of the mind, bringing him in, look at my business, I can't figure out what's wrong, what do you see? And he got it right away. Yeah. Where's the blowjobs? And he he thought they wanted for themselves. No, look at your crowd because look at your roster. All the baby faces were, I loved Hacksaw Duggan and he worked in that spot, but not when he was the best looking fucking man on the roster, right? The kick-ass baby face was also the youngest, best looking guy. He had giants and football players and ugly heels and ugly baby faces and older guys and a slower style. And and Jared had and Lawler had both just made a fucking fortune off of rock and roll tag teams and young but good looking baby faces that are fighting the odds against vicious fucking heels that cheat and line steal. And 
you know, it, it, it revolutionized that territory because it was such a departure. The same guys in Memphis that were in middle card, me and Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, the, the fans were used to in a new environment being presented a different way by a guy that learned booking from Jerry Jarrett, Bill Dundee. He gave him the record business year he'd ever fucking had. Because that was uh, the personal issues draw money sign on the office wall was legitimate. And we've talked about it with the, the Southern wrestling discussion we had a week or two ago on one of the shows. <sighs> Those guys, and you can go back to the Cal Farley's and Dutch Mantel's in Amarillo or the fucking Roy Welch's in, you know, Tennessee in the fucking forties and the green shadow, Pat Malone, the cheating, lying, underhanded heel that would do something that in the by the 80s would become a wrestling trope, as they say, a foreign object or whatever the fuck, and in the 40s was getting cops hitting the ring in these fucking cow towns and arresting the heel for doing it because they weren't smart, and they, and they fell into it, right? They got caught up in it. The personal issues and the, the baby face has to fucking walk through hell with gasoline britches on to triumph over shit. But you want to be there when he does because you're on the road with him, right? That's the, it's not phony like sports entertainment where everybody is just in a soap opera and just emoting these goddamn long, drawn out, dramatic monologues. And it's not legitimate sporting pro wrestling where everybody's just trying to compete for the title it's it's kind of the the flavor of this that was passed down from all these people is kind of like if your goddamn friends and neighbors around you were all had picked sides and were mad at each other for personal reasons and somebody had pissed on somebody else's front yard or killed somebody else's dog or whatever the fuck and you're watching them argue and fight and you're into it that and that's you know the essence of wrestling and so and again you know that's he jump-started watts's business with just a, the different talent that they had been using already he was amazing. You mentioned this yesterday when we talked about it, first heard about it. Jerry was the first promoter of, of one of the major territories that was that grew up with television. Everybody else, they they had they'd become adults before television became a thing. So they were already kind of involved in wrestling and put the wrestling on television. But since Jerry grew up with TV, he understood it better. And the television became the driving force to see the wrestling rather than just airing the wrestling you're already doing. You said it better. Yeah. I mean, there weren't too many people. I mean, if you think about it, all the promoters, at least through the mid sixties were older guys, former wrestlers in a lot of cases who were stars from a previous era. So TV comes in, look at the first generation of TV. It wasn't, you know, go watch that Chicago stuff. It's great for in-ring action. There are no promos. There are no angles. The angles are just things that happen in the matches. Yeah. But eventually, television, the television presentation of wrestling, which I actually think to this day, when done right, is still the most effective way to present wrestling, what some may call studio wrestling, with Bill Watts didn't have a studio. It was just a way to present wrestling so that 
people would want to be invested in it. And I think Jerry Jarrett, because he was younger and he grew up with TV, was able to approach that in a different way than a Roy Welch or a Nick Goulas would have. Yeah, and it, well, Roy Welch was born in 1901. He was almost 50 years old before he ever saw television. But at the same time, the Southern promoters, and you can see as Scott Teal, again, did a great Knoxville history book, and you can see some of the same things, especially the way they booked the Green Shadow with same finishes, same angles, the same kind of promotion of stipulations from week to week to juice things up. They were doing these things in the arenas in front of the people. They just all of a sudden now had a a way to reach tons more people doing the same thing to get them to come to the arena. And then at the arena, they'd do something else to get them to want to watch TV the next week to see what the match was going to be announced and blah, blah, blah. And it, it fed on itself. But Jerry was, again, great with the way he used the legends and the way he made stars out of young guys you'd never heard of. And he placed more importance in the legends of the territory than you know a lot of places did because he knew that these fans had long memories anyway in this territory and and especially in you know Memphis where wrestling had been so big and popular for so long so you could you could use that and you could use that history that people had. And then when, you know, five years after they revealed that Tojo was his mentor, for whatever reason, they turned Tojo heel on Jerry because he was disappointed in him and he slapped him around. And it didn't work. <laughs> Tojo was a baby face about three months later again. But... What it did was was show people that shit would happen. There would be a falling out. They could refer to it again so they could tease that. Later on, oh gosh, you know, things have happened before. He remembered history between Lance Russell was perfect for that because he had been around to see all of it. So he would recognize the history of the guys or things they'd done. And at the same time, young guys. You know, he didn't see, you know, laying the trade with us. He didn't see Rick Rude as a green fucking, you know, arm wrestler from Minnesota. He saw him as that guy with the washboard stomach and a good looking fucking grin and mustache and swagger. And I can do something with that guy. And, you know, whether Kamala we mentioned before, poor old Sugar Bear Harris wasn't getting booked, but Kamala wrestled Hulk Hogan in Madison Square Garden. He, he would take young guys that wanted a chance, because that's another way Jerry stayed in business. You were never going to be overpaid, and he was going to pretty much stay in business at first cost and take care of you later on, but the guys that were figured in made excellent money. When he sat me down at Channel 5, Jerry did, and asked me if I wanted to be a manager, he said, now this it's a hard business. Some people don't make money and don't take care of their money. But Bill here has become a wealthy man, and I've made a fortune. <laughs> okay. But um, he would, where was I going with that? The, oh, the, the whole fucking thing was, 
he would make sure that the business stayed in business, but he would give young guys breaks and you could work every night and you could learn how to do this live TV in one take and get over in front of crowds live and what worked and what didn't. And you're doing something different every week and you're in the car with veterans constantly. And that's why so many guys either came here when they got started because it was, they went through so much talent with weekly towns that they would, you know, if a guy came in a couple months, he didn't work out. Fuck. Okay. Give him his notice, bring somebody else in. And the thought was when you came in, you would stay as long as you could. So you could make some money and learn or whatever, but turnover was high. So, so many guys came through and learned shit and, or got a gimmick or a piece of advice or made a connection that later on made them fucking money in the wrestling business. Everybody from Hulk Hogan on down. And I'm trying to think, Jesus Christ, if you take into account everybody that Jerry Jarrett booked over the last 50 years, early in their career, it would be easier to list anybody who's been a, a big star until the last 10 or 15 years when it's all been developmental or whatever, to think of somebody that, that's been a big star that wasn't there than, than that was. And then we get to the, the 90s when Vince thinks he's going to prison. Who does he call? Try to take care of the business while he's going to be away boarding with the warden, Jerry Jarrett, who has told the story that Vince Sr. had talked to Jerry one time and said, my son's going to piss a lot of people off and he's probably going to need you at some point. If you would take care of him, I'd appreciate it. And then Jerry goes up to Connecticut for what, that year, year and a half or what? He started drinking two bottles of wine every night. He said he knew it was time to go home. Everybody from the South hated moving to Connecticut. Everybody from Connecticut loved going to the South. But, uh, and, and I know that our friend, the Artful Dodger, had tried to debunk that fact of what was happening after the fact, because Jerry didn't take Bruce seriously and treated him like the coffee boy. He had respect for Pat Patterson. He didn't take Bruce seriously. And I think it stung and wounded Bruce down to the quick. But Jerry was going to be the guy to, because Vince knew that Jerry Jarrett did not want to move to Connecticut and take over his fucking business in a hostile manner. He was at a wrestling mind that wasn't going to steal anything from him because he didn't want it and could be there temporarily to make sure that everything didn't fall into fucking chaos if, if Vince was behind fucking bars. And there weren't many people with that level of experience left in the, in the business. So, and then once that Vince didn't go to prison, Jerry said, I'm ready to go back home. And he tried, remember, he also tried to buy Jerry Jarrett offered those fucking idiots at TBS more than Vince paid for WCW. I can't remember what the offer was, but it was more than $4 million and they wouldn't take it and sold it for less to Vince. I, people may say, oh, goddamn, you know, they're thinking now it's a $6 billion company or that economics are different in this day and age. but. 
Jerry Jarrett could have put together the financing to buy WCW in 2001. He fucking 1980-something, he was living in a million-dollar house in Hendersonville. I think he could have come up with more than $4 million. Imagine what that might have looked like. I don't remember the timing of it, if that offer was before. It must have been before they found out that there was going to be no more television. Yes, no, that, that's when there was a bunch of... Bischoff had an offer out there with his group, yeah, right? There's yeah. a bunch of chaos at the end where, okay, okay, we'll buy it, we'll buy it. Oh, wait, no TV, nobody will buy it. But um, but that led to the start of TNA. Yeah, because they, well, and then, again, they come up with one investor, and that investor fucking pulls out with no notice. Remember Health South, because they got in the news for all kinds of financial improprieties and they had bigger fish to keep out of prison and he finds that they find another investor old dixie's daddy but uh, how many territories have the jarrett family territories or promotions or companies have the jarrett family started most of which have been successful how many satellite territories have they been responsible for at one point or another been asked to come in and straighten out or or help or whatever and we i know the memphis territory folded in 97 and then jerry's involvement has been sporadic with well, the first couple of years where if that long with tna but still just talking about his full-time run he was a booker on and off, and of course, they would hand it off to Lawler sometimes, and then later on, Bill Dundee, who did a great job. But Jerry was a booker on and off for 30 years, from 67 to 97. He was a not just a main event wrestler, because he could put himself in the main event, but a main event wrestler that drew money for about six or seven years, run there. He ran... Louisville Wrestling Enterprises, some of his own towns, for 27 straight years and ran his own company where he was the boss of everything for 20 years. <laughs> During that, he produced not only the Memphis wrestling program that was not only the highest rated wrestling program in the United States, but the highest rated local television program in the United States. But he also, in the days of Goulas and Welch, booked and or appeared on some of their TVs, because we've talked about in Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama alone, they did five different television programs every week. And he was in charge of some of those. Then you factor in booking in Atlanta, the other companies. Uh, TNA starting from scratch, being involved with the W, and the reason why that Jerry Lawler was with the WWE today when he is, is because Jerry Jarrett made that commitment to go help Vince in 1992. And Lawler followed soon after because why wouldn't you want your best talent on national television? I mean, who else has anywhere near this resume? You talked earlier about how they 
talked to you, him and Bill Dundee, about becoming a manager. When was it the actual first conversation or the first time you spoke to Jerry Jarrett? About that topic or, you know, in the first time I met him, the first time I spoke to him was, hello, Mr. Jarrett. Uh, no, in general, that was that day. I'm taking, it was Lawler and Flair on, in the Channel 5 studio that day in August 14, 1982. And I had driven all night to be there to take pictures because it was my girlfriend at the time's birthday the day before. And so I hadn't slept. <laughs> and so <laughs> as the show is winding up, I'm on my knees behind one of the cameras taking a picture and a tap on my shoulder. I turn around, it's Jerry Jarrett. And I mean, obviously we spoke on a, whenever Jerry would come to Louisville, uh, obviously we would speak. I've taken pictures of him. You know, we've never sat down and had an in-depth conversation because I've in those days looked at him like, okay, this is the fucking boss. I'm on a, you know, if he needs to hear from me, he will, right? I'm not going to fucking go over to Jerry Jarrett and announce, hey, Jerry, I'm here. Shake my hand. The fuck that started later. But anyway, he taps me on the shoulder. I'm like, oh shit, did I do something? No, I want to talk to you. And he brought me back in one of the offices. He says, I've been having an idea. Have you ever thought about being a manager? <laughs> now I'm thinking, okay, it is a sleep deprivation. And, uh, and I was him and him and him and him. He said, the reason I ask, and he told me the old, he said, some of the guys have heard you doing some of your, I would do impersonations like all the guys did then of Jimmy Valiant or Terry Funk or whatever. And I, and, and Teeny liked him, right? She said, oh, do Terry Funk again, whatever. Anyway, so, and of course, he's told the story since then. They said, if I could get as much heat with the fucking people as I got with the boys, he knew he had a moneymaker. But, uh, you Did know, Did you really have heat with the boys? Not really, but it's a nice <laughs> line. It is. It is. I think probably maybe every once in a while. Uh, if I was in the way somewhere, but nevertheless, um, but anyway, he said the Gary Hart gimmick millionaire playboy, and I wasn't going to pull off the playboy part, but you know, comes from a wealthy family, bought his way into. So then he said, go home and ask your mother because she's going to be spoken of in ill repute on television. And if you want to come back wearing a suit next week and as a Dundee walk, cause Dundee was the booker then. And Dundee walks in, and, and that's when Jerry's in. And yeah, it's a hard business. Some guys don't make money. Some guys don't save their money. But Bill's a wealthy man, and I've made a fortune. Okay, okay I'll buy that. You'd already been to his house by that point, right? Well, yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the housewarming, I think, I, I've told this story a while back, but he had, Teeny invited my mom and I to the housewarming because he had the big housewarming where he had that 18,000 square foot custom built mansion with an indoor ballroom that pool outdoors. It's set on a hundred acres on top of a mountain outside of Hendersonville that he'd later on subdivided that fucking property and made a fortune with his construction business. He told me he made more money than he ever made in wrestling and the wrestling money is what bought this son of a bitch. So he has the housewarming and Eddie Graham comes and he's a guest and, you know, Bobby Bear, the country star, next door neighbor plays the in a tent in the backyard and there's hundreds of people there. 
And I came wearing the fucking spiffy goddamn tuxedo to take pictures and everything. It looked like a high school graduation tuxedo, which it was, by the way. And I, and like within a month, he had, I think he got an idea that seeing me dressed up, he's like, this fucking heat getting son of a bitch. You can talk too. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, and that's, you know, that's what's, what started that. And he had the, and he said, yeah, so come back next week wearing a fucking suit. Hey, if I can ask you a question, because we've talked today and we've talked many times in the past about various lessons as a booker you could learn from Jerry Jarrett. And like you pointed out, he learned from the best. I mean, he was there with Eddie Graham after he'd already been a booker. In terms of business, what do you think are the important lessons as a businessman for the wrestling business that a promoter today could learn? I mean, one of the big ones you've talked about and guys have complained about over the years was you couldn't make money in Memphis. Because he was going to make sure that the promotion or himself were going to make money as opposed to him not making any money and everyone right. else getting all the money. Right. And, and, you, and you could, the top guys could make money in Memphis. And, and we've talked about Lawler made a fucking fortune. Uh, and even the top guys that weren't figured into the office, you know, when business was hot, the fabs were making 1500 bucks a week a piece on guarantee and a couple grand a week a piece on fucking pictures and t-shirts in the 80s. So, you know, you could make money, but it was not one of the higher paying territories. But nevertheless, your question was, what can other promoters In terms of how learn? you how you utilize your capital and your money on a show, what do you think people could learn from that? Well, you know, and here's the thing is there are differences in the territory days and now, but there can be some lessons learned. You we've talked when Lawler would take over the book Jerry didn't like to say no to people and he would end up with 35 guys on the card in Memphis on a Monday night. When Dundee would have the book, he would book it more like Jerry would. If you can't get the fucking people to come to see a card with 16 or 18 guys on it, well, then you've just shit the bed, you know? So, and especially in those days, there were no guarantees per se uh, written contracts or a guarantee per night or whatever promoters would have verbal guarantees with their top guys for a week that they would meet or exceed that. And that was kind of a loose verbal deal. But when you paid guys based on the house, you would, you know, you would shave the payoff down accordingly, but Jerry wouldn't allow the, and most time, and he'd yank a knot in Lawler's tail the payroll to get so ridiculous that even if you were giving the guys the $50 minimum, you were paying too much because there was 40 guys on a fucking card. Also, again, a cardinal rule of promoting wrestling is don't imagine that everybody knows who everybody is and everybody's already intending to come. You need to give them a reason to, and you need to make sure they know about it. And you need to make sure that they know who everybody is and why they're mad at the person they're fighting. And not necessarily the Gary Hart line, repetition is the key when dealing with goofs, but the reinforcement of who everybody is and what their standing is. And you keep your faith in in your baby faces or heels in they never, there were a lot of turns in Tennessee wrestling because with weekly magic, weekly events, you had to keep turning things around, but they wouldn't just turn anybody, but Jimmy Valiant. He was the fucking bulletproof guy. He could turn back and forth because people just loved him. 
but they wouldn't turn guys back and forth until they meant nothing. They just send them out somewhere else and, and bring them back again later on fresh. So, you know, turning over talent. But uh, again, I said the other day, it's not about giving the fans what they want to see that they come up with. We were talking about Tony Khan because they've made a number of their favorites in AEW organically over and they've dropped the ball on it. It's not that you give the fans everything they want to see. When the fans are reacting to somebody, yes, you take that and run with it and give them more reason to be into that that individual. But the bigger art to wrestling is educating the fans to what you want them to want based on what you can provide and the parameters and the limitations you may be working with. If you basically sneak the idea by your programming and your booking of what they want into their head and then give them what they want because you've already told them what it was because it's what you can give them. That kind of shit worked for a long time in Tennessee. And that's why, again, a lot of people that didn't watch it regularly grow up with it in the time period concurrently and understand it. They just look at the tape and they go, what the fuck? People took this seriously, but yes, they fucking did. Because it was all at the root of it. It was all personal. It wasn't the, the, the things that happened amongst the guys may have gotten fantastical, but it happened for a reason that everybody could understand. Jealousy, greed, avarice, pride, lust, shit like that. Do you think too many people see some of the moments of Lawler's, mostly Lawler stuff, like a Dr. Frank thing, and they think that yeah. somehow exemplifies an entire generation of Memphis wrestling TV? Yeah, I'm afraid they do. Much as some people just can't get over that I worked with a guy in a Ninja Turtle costume on a spot show in front of 300 people because he was my best friend, and that way we could get to wrestle. And and the kiddies would enjoy it because he was a turtle. See, you started all friends wrestling. Well, there you go. Um, but that that is a point: is that a lot of people see the wackier stuff and say, "Oh, that's it was all good." They, but I just tweeted a um, a clip that somebody had put together of Lawler and Terry Funk in 1990 when Petticino was doing the global thing and. And they were taping with, and that's not when Joe Petticino thought he had $30 million to form the Global Wrestling Federation. He went to Jerry Jarrett and did TV and used Jarrett's talent, blah, blah, blah. But uh, they tweeted like a two-minute clip of Lawler and Fung just beating the shit out of each other. This is when both of them were in their 40s. And... It looked better than anything that you see on television today, more aggressive and more violent. And it's just because they knew what the fuck they were doing. And it, it, it was, it felt more personal. That's the kind of stuff that drew money in the Tennessee territory. While, you know, while Lawler was, Lawler was a movie monster fan, Dundee, you couldn't have got Dundee to goddamn book Dr. Frank if you'd have held a gun on him. And Lawler couldn't wait to fucking get the mask out. But Jarrett kept control of the whole thing for long enough that if anything ever got sideways for too long, he would take control of it. And when Robert Fuller left and went back to Knoxville in, in 79, 
when that whole thing happened and he Jarrett was left with Lawler, Dundee, and eight guys that really didn't make a shit. He brings Jackie Fargo back in Rough House and he shoots the Tupelo concession stand brawl with Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham and triples the business in three weeks from all of the names that Robert Fuller had and and uh, Tanaka and Gorgeous George Jr. and the Mongolian Stomper and Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, all those guys leave. And three weeks later, they've tripled the fucking business with a bunch of nobodies and Buddy and Ken Wayne. That's, you know, when he had to come in and straighten something out, he'd do it. Jim, if I could ask, do you have any favorite Jerry Jarrett expressions or sayings? Because the one that I always remember, I forget who exactly it was about, but it was you saying, or him saying to someone, him saying to you about someone. How about, let me, how about just step out? <laughs> just step away from the story and let me tell it. I came into Memphis TV when I'd just started managing. And Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis, was with me. He had come down to take pictures for the magazines because he was a photographer at that point for the magazines. But also, everybody knows we've talked about Brian getting involved with Dom DiNucci's wrestling school early on and et cetera. And he had worked some early independence, but he had just been refereeing for Buddy Fuller, who had opened up some towns in Ohio, Dayton and somewhere else and was using Jerry's talent and they were business partners. So he's been refereeing. So I think, okay, he's with me. We go into TV and he comes in the back door with me and he goes out to, to the studio to, you know, get his camera bag unpacked or whatever. And Jerry Jarrett comes over to who was that with you? I said, well, that's Brian Hildebrand. He, I said, I, I think I said, oh, don't worry. He's smart to the business. And I was about to explain who he was. And Jerry said, I don't care if he's smart to the business. He's not smart to my business. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we went out the front door, both of us that day. He protected the business because it was his and he had to be there when everybody else was gone. Right. But uh, there were, you know, the personal issues draw money that we said, and he may be smart to the business, but he's not smart to my business. That That's another saying, but it was just Jerry's, his way of explaining, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, but his way of explaining or imparting what he wanted you to do, he could see it in his head. I got, I give finishes more like Bill Dundee because Dundee's more high strung like I am. And and Dundee would go through the thing where he would start acting it out in the locker room and you'd be blowed up watching him. Right. Jerry was laid back and calm and he talked slow and he would, he'd have that spit cup because all the guys in the early eighties, uh, you know, him and Eddie Marlin and Dundee, whoever else are chewing red man. And he would sit and he, when he would give you a finish as the booker, he never told you a wrestling move to do in the finish. That was immaterial. He gave you the story of the finish and who was supposed to do what and what your reaction should be and how to milk thing. He would, it would be descriptive like, and when the baby face turns around and sees that, well, you can't believe it. And the shock is on your face and you let people see you can't believe it and build the anticipation till then you grab that no good manager. 
Or and and like I said, he wouldn't give wrestling moves unless it was a move that needed to be reversed for the finish, something specific. He said, "Get heat on the guy," and finally, when it's time to go home, slip on a banana peel, give him his opportunity, set up the hot tag. He was big on hot tags and building the hot tag to the point where it's the most important thing in the world for that babyface to get to that corner, and he has to walk through hell. And when you finally set it up and it happens, that's why I'm so bullshit about cold tags. There has to be almost no way for that put-upon babyface to get to his corner and make a tag. It's obvious that there's no way he can make it. The heels are in between him and his partner. He's down there up. It would take a miracle. And then the miracle happens. That's why the goddamn tag is hot. But he would give, his finishes were logical. Things would happen based on what was happening around you and what you would do. You were reacting instead of acting. And so he didn't care what wrestling moves the guys used. As long as they got heat and as long as they had a big comeback and a hot tag, those things, he let the wrestlers call the plays, but he gave you the story and the emotion and what the finish was supposed to accomplish so that next week when we come back with the stipulation to prevent that fucking whatever the fuck happened to screw the baby face, the people will understand it. This time's going to be the only reason you beat me last week was because of such and such. You have a soap in my eyes or a foreign object or brass knuckles or the manager interfered or whatever the case may be. Well, this week's stipulation will nullify all of that. And that's why they kept coming back. And it was the same thing that he learned from Roy Welch, which was the same thing that he learned from Cal Farley and Dutch Mantell, which is the same thing that they figured out in fucking West Texas in 1918. Manipulate people's emotions. Milk their reactions. Get somebody that they love sideways with somebody that they can't stand that they hate and have those people have a conflict and prolong it as long as you can and finally in the end good hopefully most of the time triumphs and somebody worse than the other bad guy comes in to take his place that's the element that's the foundation of wrestling and that's what they were still doing in the Tennessee territories in the seventies and eighties that was the closest thing you could come to, to the pioneer days, because a guy that was there when all this stuff was invented had been in charge for the previous fucking 50 years. But anyway, having said that, um, like we said, I guess the only other thing to say is he was probably the most important wrestling promoter left alive, not named Vince McMahon in terms of longevity and success and impact he had on a variety of businesses and tons of future wrestling talent. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about it. You're one of the very few people, one of the last people, or just one of the very few in general that could say you as a booker trained or learned, however you want to learn is probably the more appropriate term. Yeah. Jerry Jarrett. He he never sat down and said, "Here, Jim, I'm going to show you all this all this shit." Right. What you did was, but you you were smart. You opened your eyes and ears and paid a lot of attention. But Jerry Jarrett, Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes, 
Vince McMahon, you have to put him on that list too. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to go back a little ways, we could say George Scott at one time, but wouldn't maybe belong on this list. But <laughs> when it comes to booking, what did they all, is there anything they all had in common? Because they all had their differences as bookers. Is there anything they all had in common? A lot of success in their own individual ways. You know, Watts was never going to go for the the outrageousness of Memphis wrestling because he was more serious-minded. And his approach worked, especially in his territory, because, I mean, look at the heat. They had the heels had more heat in Louisiana because of Watts' style of booking than anywhere else, probably in the country. With Dusty, it was a combination of because Watts learned from Eddie Graham, so did Dusty. But Dusty learned the the big show package. Watts was a hard nosed football player and a you know straight minded fucking pro athlete type of guy. Dusty was an entertainer. And he learned the package show and having strong cards up and down the thing from Eddie Graham. But at the same time, you can see that that Dusty also learned the crazy angles. The guys getting their clothes stripped off that they saw in Florida, fucking that he did in Florida, that he learned from Eddie Graham, that they did in Memphis, because they did it. A lot of this stuff is now going back to West Texas because Eddie Graham, one of his first main event spots that we talked about, was working for Dory Funk Sr. In West Texas. Rip Rogers. And as Rip Rogers. And Dory Funk Sr. was brought along and was and Cal Farley was still around when Dory Funk Sr. was the top guy in West Texas. Dutch Mantell, I believe, died right about the time that Funk got there. But you know, you're we're finding a lot of this the most influential people in the business and the the people who most grasped the concept of manipulating emotions in wrestling all kind of came through a similar path and interacted with a lot of the same people at the start. Um, but you had the, the difference. I mean, everybody, all those bookers had their differences, but uh, Jerry Jarrett was, he was more uh, willing to open up to wild shit because like I said, weekly territory and also, he was never he was never the guy that he wanted to protect the legitimacy of the business in terms of you know not wanting people to know that it's a work but he wasn't one of these people who wanted to shove and this is where some people have a misconception with me that oh he just wants 15 minute headlocks jerry jerry didn't want to shove athletic wrestling down to people's throats when they didn't want to buy it he put it on the card like eddie graham did so that you would have a baseline and then when the crazy shit happened well those guys are out of control and usually it's in the main events and all of blah 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 but he wasn't as hard-nosed as like a Vern gagne oh god let's take him in the barn and stretch him for some several years i never thought of it in that way it's so interesting the way you just put it as a baseline that's one of the things that feels like wrestling is kind of lost. The idea that there's a baseline and then you go above it in the big moments. Yeah, no, there's nothing now. It's just, just uncontrolled chaos for the length of the program, pretty much where nobody's in charge of anything and there's no actual 
baseline here so you can deviate from normal behavior to get a response. Because everything is accepted. You're not surprised at anything anymore. So therefore, you just, you're just you not watching a car crash. You're watching a highlight film of car crashes. So that's, I mean, that's something the old bookers understood. Hot shotting. Do it when it's necessary to get your fucking eyeballs back on your product. But if you go too far, you've killed yourself. And, it's, and if you get in a point where you have to really hot shot, have to, instead of just wanting to do a big show every once in a while, then you probably shit the bed anyway. But certain times it's necessary, like the Tupelo concession stand brawl. Now, if they'd have done that, you know, three weeks in a row, then people would have said, ah, oh, fuck. Because remember, they did it another couple of times and it didn't work like the first one because people had seen it. And that was once every year and that was too much. Yeah. And that, it, actually twice over the next three years and it was still too much. But that's, you know, restraint, logic, protect the business in terms of the integrity of it as far as we don't want people to know how we're doing this. but. You've got to have craziness, and the people will accept it if you pick the right talent because they can get it over and make it natural. You brought up that he would be willing to accept some of the crazier things. Andy Kaufman was a pretty crazy idea that was already rejected, and he accepted yeah. it. Uh, because, again, it, it was kind of tailor-made for Memphis wrestling. And, you you know, the thought was, well, let's not turn down a network television star because he might be able to sell us some tickets. But then you also you had Lawler that could. Could speak to those people and make them believe that he was giving you his true emotions on the situation. This guy's making fun of my business. And regardless of what you think of it, I take it seriously and I'm going to make a point of hurting him. And meanwhile, oh, you Kaufman's remember the, you the great quote. I love this quote. Do you think you're going to hurt Andy Kaufman? I think I have to hurt Andy Kaufman. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I have to hurt him. It's you know, so they created a situation where no matter what you thought of wrestling, here's some comedian that's taking it fucking like a joke and all in fun, and he's playing wrestler. And here's the guy that we've seen for the past ten years every Monday night beat everybody in the fucking business. It's now being made to look a fool by this fucking skinny, you know, guy that's knocking us and insulting us, that is perfect for Jerry Jarrett's philosophy of everybody can understand that. Everybody, it's not far-fetched. It Everybody could easily identify with it. And that's another thing. Remember, I said the, that was the the thing that I got from the start from Jerry Jarrett talking about interviews, especially for baby faces, because heels can lie and exaggerate and brag and be assholes, but especially for baby faces, but a lot of times for heels. Tell the fans in your interviews as much of the truth as you possibly can, that they know to be true, that are points of whatever that's not in dispute, so that then when you do start working, they won't be able to tell maybe where you left off. Well, wait a minute. He said this and this and this, and I know that's true. Those are facts. And now he's saying, that, don't just start out bullshitting people and say, yeah, I just got back from the moon and I'm going to kick your ass. No, everybody knows there's been problems between me and Dundee, Lawler might say. 
Because even when they, there was natural professional jealousy, and even when they were, you know, with the fans at the McDonald's or the liquor store or whatever afterwards, Dundee for the liquor store, Lawler for the McDonald's, when they were both baby faces, they'd knock each other behind their backs or make little snide remarks or whatever. People knew, right? So then whenever it was time to switch one of them, they could just, everybody knows there's been a long history between me and Bill or whatever, and they would buy it. It wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. Just whoever the fuck you are, keep being that person. And how would you react to shit? But nevertheless, um, again, that, you know, before all this chaos, like you said, a, a baseline, before all this chaos, these guys had to, whether it be Jerry Jarrett or Eddie Graham or Dusty or whoever the fuck we were talking about, they had to come up with shit every week for TV and every week for shows that kept the fans' attention, that the people believed in enough that they would pay to see the resolution of or what was going to happen. And under uh, basically the only parameters is don't let people know that we're fucking lying to them and act like this is all legitimately happening. Otherwise than that, you'd create whatever you wanted. And it worked for fucking a hundred years. You need a baseline with the commentators too. Yes, because if they're having a hernia about everything, uh, you know. A anyway, but that's a topic for another day. But um, but I sure do. You know, me personally, if it hadn't been for if it hadn't been for Jerry's mother, I wouldn't have been able to get anywhere around the wrestling business. And if it hadn't been for Jerry. I, you know, maybe still would be a ringside photographer. Well, I wouldn't because there's no fucking wrestling unless I wanted to travel the goddamn world. So I might be a fucking radio DJ or a newspaper person by now. Uh, if it wasn't for Jerry saying, hey, you ever thought about being a manager? Well, sure, I've thought about a lot of this shit, but seriously, ever? No. But that's the thing. He could see shit. So, you know, I, that whole, that's why I've always tried to work with whatever, you know, Jeff had that was going on to help him in some respect, because if it hadn't been for both Jerry and, and Teeny, I wouldn't have been in the wrestling business at all, ever. So I'm, I'm sorry that both of them are gone now. It goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever hear your boss is having a party, rent a tuxedo. <laughs> show up. And make it powder blue with a bow tie. No, it wasn't, was it? Oh, it was, baby. Oh, I thought it was at least black. It was powder oh, I blue. I went in and saw that. I said, tuxedo? Well, I'm fucking 19 or whatever. I was tuxedo. <laughs> well, that one looks great. They knew I was a gimmick from day one. I just didn't know. I got to uh, mention a couple of people um, again this week that have, have passed away. And to start, um, an old friend of ours, and his name may not be familiar to a lot of the listeners around the world are the younger folks, but Brian Bucantis uh, passed away just a day or so ago as, as we record this. And Brian was a member of the group. We've talked so many times on the shows here, and, and Brian, you've had you know multiple discussions on the 605 from the archives and et cetera of wrestling history and Detroit wrestling history. And there was a group of guys that were the 
the original kind of group of modern smart fans in, in the Detroit area that later on became photographers and publishers and uh, performers themselves, Gary Kamensack, Gary Mancuso, uh, our friend Dave Brzezinski, Supermouth Dave Drayson, the manager, and and Brian Bucantis. And, you know, there's a, a guy who was devoted a large part of his life to producing a lot of the stuff that people in that part of the country saw in terms of the arena programs and the, the fan magazines taking pictures and the publicity that went around the world in the magazine, especially with the Sheik, you know, being such a one of the biggest box office stars in the business at that time in the early 70s and mid-70s. So, uh, and I know you you actually dealt with Brian not long ago on the Pro Wrestling Enterprises collection, and, you know, he he wanted it to have a good home. Let me just say, a terrific guy, one of the nicest people you could have ever met, and it was an honor to know him and do business with him, and I think I said at the time, I wish every deal I did could be done with Brian Bucantis because he was such a wonderful guy to do business with. He was looking for a good home for Pro Wrestling Enterprises' vast archives. And we had, after, you know, talking for a long period of time, getting to know each other, we had come to an arrangement, we had a deal, we had a contract, everything. And at the very last minute, WWE tried to swoop in and steal the deal. They tried to offer much more money for what was already agreed upon. Now, the thing that a lot of people don't want to tell you in life is you could always get out of a contract. So if he wanted to, he could have gotten more money from WWE. And that says a lot about what kind of guy he was. He didn't. He honored the deal we had. He told me all about what they were trying to do. And he wanted to make sure it wasn't just going to be stuffed in a warehouse, that it would have a good home and it would have some care. And for everyone who listens to the wrestling news every single day, that exists today because of Brian Bucantis and just a terrific guy. And if I could say one other thing, because uh, obviously we send our condolences and sympathies to his family, but specifically just the greatest group of guys, him, Dave Brzezinski, Gary Kamensack, Gary Mancuso, just great guys and uh, send a lot of love to them too. I I told you, uh, yeah, Dave Brzezinski had, had called and left me a message, and I got to get back with him. He's another uh, person I need to call back. But um, I don't know. It was a rib somehow on Brian Buchanan. You hadn't heard about this, but it's probably in your archives. It was either a pro wrestling enterprises publication, one of the magazines or programs, or, you know, one of the other magazines at the time that the Garys shot pictures for. But there was a picture of Dick the Bruiser, and the caption was something to the effect of, and yes, and Dick the Bruiser also did this or that or played here or wherever under his real name of Brian Bucantis. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I remember seeing that because at the time, I honestly knew, I knew what Bruiser's name was because it had been in the newspaper when the Pafos, no, it was before that, when somebody else sued him or whatever, I'd seen that. But I didn't know who Brian was until like a year or two after that, when I, you know, got a little bit smarter about the whole smart fan group around the country and have more heavily into the fan clubs and et cetera. But somebody had to be ribbing him, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bruiser. Uh, but what a, just like you said, what a nice guy. And an interesting background. If you really think about it, he started producing a fanzine 
arena. Eventually, he's producing programs under the name Stranglehold. He ends up producing Body Press. What started as a wrestling fanzine ended up becoming Arena Publishing. He put out Goldmine for anyone out there who collects records. I mean, Goldmine was the magazine for record collectors, and that was him. And it all started from, you know, going to the Kobo. And like you said, just a great guy, but a very interesting history in wrestling. A lot of people, you know, on 605, we always focused on the wrestling ecosystem. I don't want to talk to a Hulk Hogan. I'd rather talk to everyone around him. And one of the guys that had a very, Brian Bucantis, one of the guys who had a very interesting life around wrestling and dealing with, on a business level, a lot of characters like the Sheik and Dick the Bruiser and great guy. Just a great guy. I want to ask you about something that has been something a lot of listeners have sent in questions about over the last day, the news that broke that Bob Miller, better known as obviously Butch Miller, Bushwhacker Butch, Sheepherder Butch, has passed away. Yeah, and, and it was it was really sad because I guess this was the first time that he had been to the United States since, what, 2015, I think somebody said, and he was coming over for or did come over for, you know, the wrestling fan fest, you know, uh, events over WrestleMania weekend and was going to be, you know, back together with Luke. And I still don't know what, what the cause of it was, but he had some health emergency, I guess, pretty much right after he got to California and was hospitalized. And then we, we just heard he passed away. And I, what a nice guy. And I mean, both of them, Luke and Butch, both. Just great guys and nice guys and fun to have in the locker room and, you know, old pros in the best sense of the word. And the first sheep herders that I got to know in person were Luke Williams and Jonathan Boyd, because that's a period of time. I can't remember why they, why Jonathan stepped into the team. Butch may have been injured or or whatever the case, but for a couple of years there, Jonathan, who was the grumpy one. Uh, Jonathan Boyd was not a happy go lucky smiling guy. And so Luke stood out even more as being the, you know, the cool one, right of the bunch. But, but Luke and Butch had been the primary team. They'd started out together, I guess, in the sixties and they were the, the Kiwis first, right? That the first gimmick they had that we would know in the United States. Yeah, I think so. Um, cause the, of course, Kiwi is, you know, and Australianer, New Zealander type of thing. In Stampede, they were the Kiwis. Yes. And, you know, they wrestled through the mid-70s as the Kiwis and then became, I guess, uh, later part of the decade, the New Zealand sheep herders for a while. And, and I mean, at the time when they were young, remember Luke Williams with that fucking face? He was Sweet William. Remember that when he was younger? And I think Butch also, did he not wrestle as, as Crazy Nick? At one point, Crazy Nick Carter? Maybe. He had that? a few names. It's always weird when you see pictures of them with those faces but long hair. Yes, and they had huge um, fucking flowing long hair. And Jonathan Boyd did too. When Jonathan Boyd was a member of the Royal Kangaroos with Norman Frederick Charles III, they had long hair also. And then everybody ended up pretty much going bald. But anyway... Um, but no, Luke and Butch, you know, just great guys. They had the tremendous run there with the Fantastics in Mid-South where they had all those crazy barbed wire matches and everything. And they were like 
at that point, really a hardcore team before there was any ECW or hardcore anything. And then that's why it was such a, you know, a rib amongst the boys that these bloodthirsty, savage, wild, crazy maniacs go to work for Vince and become the beloved, you know, bushwhackers licking kids' faces. It was just, it was hilarious. But, you know, they made more money with that gimmick than they did doing anything else. And they were already fucking their 40s at that point. So, you know, I just, I feel bad that, uh, I feel bad it happened at all, but especially when, you know, he had just come back after all this time and was going to get to do some, you know, some of the fan fest appearances and spend some time with Luke. So I, I hate to hear about that. They were, they were great guys. Even if the Bushwhackers were not necessarily the favorite team of the hardcores at the time, but that was kind of like their pension, their retirement, because they had been a fantastic team, you know, before that and done all that crazy shit. So it was good. They got a spot where they could be remembered and didn't have to cut their heads off all the time. Moving along for the main event of the program. Um, obviously it was the news a couple of days ago. Now that superstar Billy Graham passed away. He was 79 years old. He had, uh, been hospitalized for some time and everybody had, you know, been tweeting about it and his wife had been given updates. And obviously it, it, with all the health issues that he's had over his life over the last, what, 35 years, people got used to, you know, well, he's in bad health and then he makes a comeback or whatever, but this one was longer and more severe, I think, than the others. And obviously, you know, he didn't make it this time, but I, I mean, it's it's what everybody's going to say and already have said. Uh, they did a, a great package on WWE television. And for reasons that we will talk about, the Graham family has been intertwined with the McMahon family for the past, what, more than 60 years now. But uh, so it's it's not any new ground, I guess, Brian, to say he was at one time the biggest box office attraction in the business. He was revolutionary in you know, in, inspiring or outright, you know, uh, basically being ripped off by everybody from Hulk Hogan and Dusty Rhodes on down. You know, at the same time, I think a lot of people that, because of the modern video era, the younger people may not have seen as much. They've done the retrospectives on the WWE, did a DVD and They've had plenty of stuff on the network, but maybe now more people are seeing the stuff from the 70s than have at least checked it out in the modern era because it's, you know, being sent around. But do you tell me, do the modern fans, because of the 80s expansion, remember like the basically the last run? What in WWF was 86, 87, the hip surgery, the whole nine yards there? Is that what they remember or, and they've just heard about the rest or have they, what am I trying to say here? Does everybody know exactly what, how the fuck he got to be that big a star, that big a draw when all they saw was the end of his career and the Crockett stuff in the mid eighties? I think it depends on the fans age. It depends on how much they dive into content. Like you said, if you grew up in the eighties, you saw Kung Fu Billy Graham which some fans didn't even think was the real Billy Graham. Yeah. And then you got to see him when he got back into the tie-dye, but he was completely immobile and 
Yeah. I think he got hurt in his first WWF match back in 86. And then by 88, he was on commentary. And then that's, he, that's, and that's know. when they did the, the hip, his first hip surgery and they had footage of it on the show, which that's was right. kind of grisly for that time period of WWF. You know, but it's interesting though, when they showed on SmackDown, I think it was the package for Billy Graham, they had the hall of fame from 2004 with Triple H giving the speech because Triple H grew up a big superstar Billy Graham fan, New England kid wanted yeah. to get into bodybuilding. That's what happens. And he said, Billy Graham was 20 years ahead of his time. And it's interesting hearing that about someone who, when you really think of it, was actually one of the biggest stars of the 70s. Not like someone who was uncovered years later or someone who no one discovered or like the Velvet Underground, like eight people bought their record, but every one of them started a band. He was actually one of the biggest stars of the decade, but he still felt like he was ahead of his time because of the physique, because of the way of talking, because of the way of interacting with the TV but he actually was one of the biggest stars of the seventies. Well, he, and he actually was only six years ahead of his time because if, if he had been the superstar Billy Graham of 1978 and 1984, Vince wouldn't have needed Hulk Hogan because he would have already had superstar Graham. So, because that was, well, I said, we were going to talk about how the Graham family and the McMahon family were intertwined it's it's kind of ironic that Vince ended up the first favorite wrestler that he ever had as a teenager when he moved from his trailer in North Carolina and finally met Vince Sr., his real father, when he was, what, 15, was Dr. Jerry Graham. And his favorite wrestler, as as he became an announcer, and if he had owned the company at the time that Billy Graham was champion, was superstar Billy Graham, the gimmick, the last gimmick brother of Dr. Jerry. And during that period of time, the one that Vince Sr. did the most business with was neither Jerry nor Billy, but was Eddie. <laughs> and I think, it, you know, I think it's fascinating that the Grahams in some way or another were always figured in with the McMahon family, but if for different reasons and depending on Vince Senior or Junior. And but that was that was the the reason I think why that not only did Dr. Jerry Graham get so many chances with Vince Senior in the late fifties to through the mid sixties, but then. Billy Graham got so many chances with Vince even after he retired. And I mean, because the last 35 years, if Vince Jr. was sending Billy Graham a check, and this is, it's, I'm not burying the guy's public knowledge, then Billy Graham was all for the WWF. And if he wasn't, then Billy Graham was saying, these people are all possessed by demons and are, you know, Satan walking the earth. And he legitimately, I guess he got so religious, he legitimately believes in like demon possession being an actual thing that happens. So he would, but Vince would always, because it was superstar, he would always take him back just like to a, maybe a lesser extent, Vince senior would always take Dr. Jerry back because well, it's, it's fucking Dr. Jerry Graham. And Eddie was the only one that didn't cause anybody any trouble. Except himself. Well, exactly. But, you know, it's interesting. I found uh, not too long ago 
in the Wrestling News archives going through the files, in the Superstar Billy Graham file is correspondence from Norm Keitzer to Billy Graham in, I want to say, 79, that, you know, talking about where the relationship was. Again, world champion 77, 78. In 79, Vince McMahon Sr. wouldn't allow Billy Graham to buy advertising space in the programs to advertise his poster. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, that was the thing is that he melted down over the title loss. And I mean, if you've read his book and if anybody out there, if you've read the book or I think it's still available on Amazon. Uh, but he melted down when Vince Sr. took the title off of him while he was still the biggest box office attraction in the business. And think about it at that time. What were the three highest paying jobs in wrestling in 1978? The NWA champion, unless you were a promoter also or a, a booker of own part of the office. I'm just talking about purely for wrestling. NWA champion, WWF champion, and Andre the Giant, not necessarily in that order. And he was the hit of the New York and the toast of the Northeast. And they were still selling the buildings out. A better Vince, sellout ratio than anyone else in Garden history for wrestling. Yes. And not more than Bruno, but a better percentage because, you know, I mean, I don't want to get on side tracks here, but Bruno had a period where there was no TV in New York and blah, blah, blah. But Vince Sr. honored the commitment that he made to put the belt on him, but he honored the commitment he made to take it off of him. Remember, that was the story. He gave him his starting date where he was going to win it and the date he was going to drop it at the same time. And Graham was sure, you know, with business like this, there's no way they're going to take this belt off of me. And they did. And, and that can't be easy. Because even if you know you're supposed to lose the title on a specific day a year later, as that year's happening and you're getting bigger and bigger and the sellouts just keep coming and people are paying a lot of money to see anyone beat you. Putsky, Dusty, Mil Moscaris, someone. And then doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how good that year is. It ends at this date. You know, I think even if you weren't Billy Graham, that would probably fuck with most people's minds. Yeah. And the entire Graham family, and I have family in quotation marks because they really, only Eddie and Mike were really related, but you guys know what we're talking about. They had problems at various points with uh, with substances whether either alcohol or uh, in dr jerry's case alcohol and mental illness eddie with alcohol and billy with drugs um both the steroids that damaged him but also he got on drugs as a result of that title loss and that was where remember i, I first saw him in 1979 in person because back in those days uh he was the hit of the magazine covers and the pictures were phenomenal. And especially after the after magazines, the London publishing line, they liked belts, bodies, and blood. And Graham had definitely one in every picture, if not all three. And so he was on the covers and, you know, but it's a say, and you knew that he was selling out Madison square garden, but this was the days before home video. And there was no way unless you took a trip to the fucking Northeast Territory or the guy came to your territory, you couldn't ever see him. So 
The only t- I had seen brief glimpses. Remember, there was a, he had a scene with Wahoo strap match in The Wrestler in 1974, which was shot in 73 when he was on top for Vern. And, you know, you couldn't really tell much from the movie scene. But then when he finally, when they took the belt off of him, he dropped out of the business for a while and got fucked up mentally and et cetera, et cetera. And then, I mean, as I guess the, the entire instigation of this was Jerry Jarrett was creating the CWA world title because he couldn't get Lawler to run with the, either the NWA or the AWA title at that point that he was going to make his own. And he wanted a legitimate world champion level guy to carry it, to give it the credibility. And obviously then it would go to Lawler. And then that's why when Lawler broke his leg after winning it, uh, Jarrett brought Billy Robinson in because it's Billy Robinson. He could be a world champion. But Superstar Graham was the guy. And the problem was this was what uh, fall of 1979. So he'd been out of the business for a year. He hadn't been training hard. He wasn't real tan. I mean, he still had a great body. It was Billy Graham. But also think about this. He's come to Memphis, and I'm sure Jared probably made him a day. Billy, you won't make less than 200 bucks a night or whatever it was, but it was nowhere near the money that he'd been making. And even, you know, at the time, if he's in, a, in front of a crowd of five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people, to him, that was like a spot show. And so, and he was kind of defeated mentally. So he was a nice guy. And, but, you know, we didn't get the best superstar, Billy Graham. It's not like he was motivated to tear the fucking house down every night, right? He was working sort of like handsome Jimmy toward the end of the in-ring years. And at the same time, we did the Memphis fans, Tennessee fans didn't have the benefit of having seen him come in and get over in a territory in his in his prime, which was only fucking three years earlier, right? And get to talk every week on TV and the whole the big push and blah blah blah. It was just kind of an abrupt thing. So that didn't work, and he was here where he dropped the belt to Lawler at Lexington on I think November eighth of uh God damn, of 79, I'm sorry. And I think by the following January, I think he was gone. But it was, you know, it it just, it was an example of context and time and place. And he had a different style than the Tennessee style. And it just, but at least, you know, I got to see him at that point. Do you, and, remember, do you remember the first ahead. time you actually saw him in a magazine? Because there have been impressive physiques before that. I mean, Sailor Art Thomas may have had the most impressive yeah. natural physique ever. But he was another level, especially after he left L.A. If you see those L.A. pictures, he's still kind of big and bulky. But then he got shredded. Do you remember when you first saw him in the magazines? Yes, I do. And, well, let, let's go back. Without going back to I was born a, in a poor a child in a log cabin all the way back. Jerry Graham obviously was the first Graham. And we've talked about the Graham brothers and they're going to be an episode of Dark Side of the Ring this season also. And I'm going to be on that because I, I did some research for that a few months back. But he was, you know, mentally ill and an alcoholic and crazy. And 
he's the one that started the riot in Madison Square Garden in 57, where, I mean, we'll never know the real story. Everybody's dead, but possibly he got juice on Raqqa when he wasn't supposed to. And potentially also Raqqa didn't know till after it was over with either. And they had a fucking riot and almost got wrestling banned in the garden. The front page newspapers, we've talked about it. And then he gets his brother, Eddie, who the Grams become, you know, one of the biggest drawing heel teams in the history of the business at that point. And they're selling out New York and everywhere. Not real brother, just a... Not real brothers, but he get Eddie Gossett. But Eddie only can take Jerry Graham for a couple of years before he finally, after the, when the run ends, he goes to Florida and ends up the top guy owning the territory, working with Vince Sr. for the next 25 years until Eddie died, or until 20 years till Vince Sr. died. And they had a close relationship between the Florida and the New York offices. But Jerry then got what crazy Luke in what seven sixty four, and Eddie even came back to work some six mans to kind of give Luke validity as a grand brother, but that was a case of Vince Senior bringing back Doctor Jerry after a few years. Let's try it, the grand brothers again. It's the doctor, and he they flamed he flamed out quick. But Luke Graham made a living off that gimmick for the next 20 years, just being a grand brother and being crazy. And believe me, I saw Luke Graham in the seventies and the eighties. Again, nice guy. Couldn't work a fucking lick awkward as shit, but he had the size, the gimmick and the fucking promo. And then the last hurrah for Jerry trying to get back into business. This was after the hospital incident which is chronicled in Behind the Curtain, my graphic novel, on sale now at jimcornett.com, where he stole his mother's body from the hospital at gunpoint in Arizona and beat up the orderlies and was taken in by the squad of police. He talks the Los Angeles office, Jerry does, into bringing him in, because it's Dr. Jerry Graham, right? And he brings in a bodybuilder that is going to be his brother, Billy. And that's had Wayne Coleman had broken in, what, six months beforehand in Calgary. Yeah. And they trained him, and he was a bodybuilder. He had been an evangelist and a bodybuilder and did the traveling revival shows when he was, like, in his early 20s. So he knew show business and had the gift of how gab. To work, how to work people. How to work. Yes, it exactly. And the, the fucking line of the patter, the promo. And then they trained him in Calgary briefly. And then Jerry, because they were both for Jerry Graham was from Arizona also. So he got him booked in Los Angeles as his brother. And I have to think the reason why they chose Billy Graham was because I don't know if people around the world are aware of this, and probably a lot of people in the United States have forgotten now, but the biggest TV preacher in the entire United States was Billy Graham. He was on network TV. He, gave, he did the, all the president's funerals and consulted with the high muckety mucks, the Reverend Billy Graham. This, he was a big fucking name. And so if you're going to, if you've been an evangelist, 
and you're going to be a brother of a guy named Graham, why not be Billy? So in a roundabout way to answer the question about when did I first see him in the magazines, and we had to do the background there just so everybody knew the relation, the first magazine cover that I saw of him had to be like, it was a magazine from 1972, or no, 71, but I may have gotten it as a back issue in 72. But it's one of Bill's magazines, Aptors, and the cover is This Billy Graham Preaches Violence. And it's him in the fucking hippie fringe jacket that he used to wear in Los Angeles when he first got started. And that was just, that was cool, you know, oh, the, he's got Billy Graham's name, right? And then Superstar came in, what, 72 from Jesus Christ Superstar when he went to, uh, the first place he did that was AWA working for Vern, right? I think so, yeah. Because he was just, obviously it was, and again in Los Angeles, I don't think Jerry lasted long again before something happened, but Billy was there as a single for a while and then, you know, bopped around a bit and ended up working for Vern Gagne. It is such an interesting move though, just because like you said, the Reverend Billy Graham was a pretty big figure in society to take the name Billy Graham of all the names you could have picked to pick that one. Yeah. And there probably was. I would think some pushback at the time from some people like, wait a minute, can we do that? Because that's how puritanical or whatever it was then. And then, again, Superstar has a bunch of connotations, but if he'd have come out, if he'd have played the Jesus Christ Superstar music, I think he might have got <laughs> run off television. But he got he gets his first name from a TV preacher and Superstar from the play about Jesus Christ. So he he was reaching for the stars there. And, and, you, and you talk about influence over the McMahons. I could be wrong. I believe WWE still holds the copyright on the term superstar for wrestlers. And Vince McMahon's love of using superstar instead of wrestler yes. really all stems back to Billy Graham. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that, well, before we get to talk about what he influenced Hogan, when he goes to work for Vern, um, Dusty is there also. That's when Dusty was still there as a heel before he went to Florida, right? Yeah. So the thing is, Dusty always had the 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 lisp and the the way he spoke. And I'm not saying that he just copied, but at the same time, Tower Power, Man of the Hour, too sweet to be sour, that's superstar. And and you see all the pictures of Graham went to Florida in the late 70s when Dusty was there and on top, they the pictures of them with their arm around each other. Pictures of them with their arm around each other. Dusty brought Superstar to Crockett in 85 when he needed a job. At Dusty, Hogan saw the body, and so did Jesse Ventura, the body and the rap, the promo, the patter. But at the same time, Dusty saw that funky jivey way of speaking too and made some of it his i'm not saying everybody just copied billy graham outright although a number more people did and as this can go to austin idol and we can go on and on but a lot of people took some certain thing from him and you know made money with that it is funny, though, that we recently saw the Dusty Rhodes biography where Hulk Hogan said, I was in the crowd and I saw Dusty Rhodes and I said, that's what I want to be. 
And now here with the Billy Graham tribute video, who's the same thing. I was yeah. there. I saw Billy Graham. I said, that's what I want to be. Whoever they're interviewing Hogan about, that's who he wanted to be. Well, and remember uh, Flair, when he was starting out in the AWA, when Dusty was there as a heel and Graham was just coming in, he wanted to be rambling Ricky Rhodes and be Dusty's little brother or whatever. But but at the same time, you would you would also see some of superstar in flair and just the way he carried himself as a heel and et cetera. Anyway, the point being when he went to work for Vern, that's where the magazine covers souped up. And also think about this. He breaks in in very early 1970 or late 69, one or the other as a, as a wrestler by what 72, 73, he's working for Vern Gagne in the AWA as a top heel. That's three years in. And he's already 30 years old because he started late. And the thing about Graham, and it fit Vern's territory, because Vern liked wrestling for himself and his opponents, Billy Robinson, Nick Bockwinkle, but he also liked the crazy gimmick guys, Crusher, Mad Dog, Vashon, because that's what got over in the Midwest. And his baby faces and heels, Vern's, were some of the biggest names in the business that had drawn money everywhere, but they were also, there was no young people on the card. Every, you know, Ray Stevens at that point was 40, and Bockwinkle, um, and they were the bump guys, right? <laughs> so when Graham comes in, he didn't need to take a lot of bumps, which was the only thing he never did, but he had a better body that nobody had seen, and he, it was a territory of promos. And he was a great promo even in that field. And he didn't mind bleeding. And they liked blood in the strap matches with Wahoo or the fucking grudge matches with Crusher or the saloon brawls. And he's got the fucking, the look. And it, so he drew a ton of money there and was one of the guys figured in for Vern for a couple of years. And again, fit right into that big man and or you know, talk them in the building, you know, gimmick match kind of territory that, that Vern did. The That's another contrast with like a Tennessee territory or any, any, Graham got over in Florida, but he was not the guy, he was one of an all-star lineup because the Southern territories that ran towns weekly, they expected more in the matches in the arenas, the house shows, more action, more bumps, more whatever. Because whereas in the Midwest and the Northeast, you saw every week on TV, you saw the top guys talking and beating some job guy up. And you only saw him once a month in the building actually having a main event match. In the Southern territories, you saw him in the building every week having a main event match. So they had to gear it up a little bit. But then again, did he, did he go to Texas after Vern? He was down in Texas for a while. Then, yeah. then, then he was doing. At one point, he was doing Florida and the WWF at the same time. That's right. Because again, he was in the WWF. What a year and a half, two years before he ever got the belt. It wasn't like he just got there and got right. the belt. Yeah, I think. Um, I think he went from Vern. He had a a, a run on top in Texas, and uh, got to perfect more of that shit. Did did the, a lot of the arm wrestling challenges and then it worked for Vince for quite some time plus made shots in Florida and then when he got the belt 
it's another reason people, I guess now maybe nobody talks about this anymore either, but the war between the NWA and the WWF that Vince Jr. would kick off, the only place besides, I think they did it once in St. Louis, didn't they? But um, no, they did it in Atlanta. The NWA champion versus the WWF champion took place in Florida. Eddie, one of Eddie Graham's town, a couple of Eddie Graham's towns. I think they did race and Graham in the Orange Bowl in Miami. They called it the Super Bowl, didn't they? The, the Super Bowl of wrestling. And of course, they went 60 minutes, Broadway, I think, which had to be, had to be fun for Harley because that wasn't fucking Superstar's gig. Um, I think they did one in Atlanta with Backland and uh, Race. 82. No, 82, they did Backland and Flair. Backland and Flair. I think it was July 4th, 82, and there's no footage of the match out there. And Flair probably burned it. From what uh, I understand, but, it, he may have wanted to. It wasn't a good match, everyone says. Yeah. But they but they did they did several of those title versus title matches in the Florida territory and uh they had a cooperative relationship and then at the same time they've just had on the dusty biography and also on some of the superstar clips that was the big trilogy you know in the garden and elsewhere was dusty versus Graham in 77 for the WWWF title in the WWWF and Dusty was on loan from Eddie Graham for that. So there was a close working relationship there. But that that's why, you know, again, you look at Billy's career. He breaks in within a couple of years. He's a main event guy in a big territory. He's making money. I don't, I don't know if he made a lot of money in Dallas, but he didn't stay there long. He's in the WWF in Florida, both the biggest money geographic territory in the country at the time and Florida, the home territory of not only some of the top talent, but also one of the most important promoters in the business and he's being used. And then he wins the WWF championship and he's, and he's the biggest box office attraction in the world and, or at least in the country. And by 1978, He's been in the business eight years. He's done all that. They take the belt off of him, and he just, and he, like we talked about earlier, cracks up and just drops out. And remember, Gorilla Monsoon in the Philadelphia newspaper, where he had a weekly column on wrestling, reported that superstar Billy Graham died. He's, yeah, died of cancer. And by the way, now, I have that newspaper article. It's in the vault. I saw it just the other day when I was looking at some other stuff. But I think that was... The year I think that was right after his Memphis run. Also, is is Gorilla <laughs> had fucking printed that, and because he did kind of disappear again after the thing in Memphis. But then when he showed up in '82, all of a sudden, I mean, he was losing his hair, but now he's completely bald with a mustache and still in good shape, but a relatively good shape. Well, he's still in good shape. Well, but very different than what he once was. And actually, if you ever see footage of Billy Graham in 1982, he looks like 10 years older than he looked just a few years later. Yes. Well, and see, that's the thing. By the by 1982, there were several things wrong. Number one, he was almost 40 now. So he had still in that in the karate gimmick 
Kung Fu Billy Graham, he had the body of a 40-year-old guy that had been a incredible physiqued bodybuilder years earlier. And he still looked good for, you know, I'm not saying I could have fucking beat him in a pose down, but he wasn't the guy that was doing, you know, the pose downs with all the top bodies in the business a few years earlier. But also he's, he's never been a guy that did a lot of bumps, took a lot of bumps or had a lot of, he wasn't, he wasn't a smooth bodybuilder like Ricky Steamboat. Even when Steamboat ripped himself up for competition bodybuilding in the Carolinas at one point, he was still smooth as silk. Whereas Graham was not a smooth bodybuilder worker. It was the the promo and the the action and et cetera, et cetera. So now he's 40 and he's trying to do a karate gimmick because I think he mentioned it again in his book. He wanted to do something different. He had no confidence. He didn't think he thought it was, he had to do something different. I don't know what the fuck, but bald head, black handlebar mustache, black karate gi pants from the once tie-dyed most colorful superstar in the, in the fucking wrestling business. And Scott Steiner, there you go. My God, that was Scott Steiner in TNA with Chainmail was Billy Graham from 30 years earlier. So again, Philadelphia fans read in the newspaper that he died. Then they see him like this. He sounds the same, but he looks radically different. So some fans actually thought it was either a different guy or that the real guy died. Yeah, basically fake Billy Graham. And and Gorilla never would retract the the deal, but the karate gimmick was horrible anyway. And that's where I'm saying now we're in the video era. And people who are trying to seek out home video that's not on the network that was passed around by the collectors or put on YouTube or whatever, now they're seeing Karate Kung Fu Billy Graham, which was grisly horrible. And then, I guess, was it, did he go straight from there? Was he out again for a while? But he ended up working for Crockett in late 84, early 85, when Dusty came in as Booker. He was in Florida before that. Okay. Which makes sense because Dusty was booking Florida. Because I read something Sean Waltman put up there, which I thought was interesting because he's someone who actually did get into martial arts and became a big, well, became a big wrestling fan, was a wrestling fan and became a wrestler. But that was the first Billy Graham he saw. He never saw the tie-dye Billy Graham. So to him, karate Billy Graham was cool because he never saw the other one. Oh, boy. You know, it's interesting. There are fans like that, that the first version of whatever you see you think that's great, but if you've never seen the other stuff, what else do you have to judge it on? Well, Kung Fu Billy Graham didn't sell out to Garden 28 fucking times in a row or whatever it was, but but then we, to Crockett, to my point of where I was going with this was, that's where I had obviously met him and talked to him as a photographer when he was in Tennessee briefly. I have pictures, etc. But now I'm in the locker room with superstar Billy Graham. And when he came back to the Carolinas for Crockett, at least he went back to the tie dye. And he, like you said, he was losing his hair. Cause now he was, well, he, he just passed away. He was born in uh, 43. So he was 42 years old now after multiple years of multiple <laughs> steroids and other things. So he'd lost his hair. He was shaved, but he was jacked up again. And he had the bleach blonde beard. Um, you know, and, and had the, the do rag on and the tie dye and the, and he had the talk and the patter 
And so he was back to kind of being superstar Billy Graham. And in in Crockett at that point, he didn't have to be the guy. He was a big star on, once again, another all-star roster where all the baby faces were popular and all the heels had heat. And that, you know, fit in. And we did the thing with the Midnight Express against, first it was Jimmy Valiant and Rocky King. And Jimmy Valiant was representing the street people. And, and of course, Big Mama's cameo appearance there. Boogie man. Oh, I've looked in bars. I've looked in cars. And here you are. And then Superstar Graham comes to the aid of poor Rocky King. So it's Superstar Billy Graham and handsome Jimmy Valiant against the Midnight Express. And of course, Jimmy is my favorite wrestler from 1977 when he came in to work for fucking Jared and did the program with Lawler. Woo, mercy. And my mama Cornette was actually named handsome Jimmy Jr.'s official godmother when he was born. Cause that was while they were here in this territory. And so that's fun working with handsome. And then there's superstar Billy Graham who again, six years previously or seven years that had been the biggest fucking star in a business. So, and Bobby and Dennis could take all the bumps cause neither one of them were going to take any bumps, but it was fun to have those house show matches. And then, I actually, I wrestled, <laughs> technically I wrestled superstar Billy Graham because we had a couple of six man tags at a couple of house shows where it was him and handsome and Rocky King against me in the midnight. And I believe my, the extent of our interaction was me getting in and choking him while he was down and maybe dropping an elbow. I'm pretty sure. Cause Jimmy was actually at that point, Jimmy was the, one of the hottest baby face in the territory. So he always got the tag to make the comeback. Uh, but uh, I've technically wrestled superstar Billy Graham. So there you go. Hey, uh, Kung Fu Billy Graham. Do you remember what his entrance music was? Kung Fu fighting. Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, that was, yeah. And then um, at that point, what it was, Late 85, early 86, that's when he left Crockett. And, um, you know, honestly, again, I can't say that a lot of people noticed he left Crockett. And it's not to be derogatory, but just because it was loaded, packed, the locker room of stars, and they were bringing in some more. And, you know, Dusty liked Billy, but Billy was not a huge draw on his own in the Carolinas for that run. But that, I believe, was when he it, it convinced Vince Jr. to... And see, again, that's the thing. If Vince Jr. in 1978 had been in the position he was in in 1982, Graham would have never lost the belt. And for that matter, it's not like Vince had a sudden goddamn epiphany between 1978 and 1982, what he wanted to do if he'd have been running the company four years previously, he would have started trying to expand then. May have been tougher because there wasn't anywhere near as much cable television. But that's the thing. Whereas Vince Sr. wanted to go with Backland, he didn't like having a heel on top. He wanted an all-American boy after all of the years of the ethnic heroes and the short-term heels. And he promised to go with Bob Backlund, and they still sold out. 
they still did great business because the company was on fire and they had the biggest towns in the country. So it's not like it hurt their business as much as it destroyed Graham's momentum and or psyche. But that was, whereas Vince Sr. tolerated Jerry Graham starting riots and all the trouble he caused because he drew money, but and he gave him a couple of second chances because of that, Vince Sr. loved Jerry Graham as a personality because he was a teenage kid riding down the fucking streets of Manhattan in a bright red convertible Cadillac with this fucking maniac lighting cigars with $100 bills in 1958. But at the same time, Superstar, the youngest brother, would end up being the prototype 25 years later, right? Or more. Would end up being the 20 years, whatever. Would end up being the prototype for what Vince McMahon Jr wanted to feature as the world champion in his plan to take over the world. And in the middle, the longest business relationship was between Vince Sr. and Eddie Graham, who both became two of the most powerful promoters in the business and had a relationship that at some points was even outside the parameters of the NWA. And then, finally, Vince Jr., gets put back in the same position with Billy Graham that Vince Sr. was with Dr. Jerry at one time in that he kept giving Billy Graham second chances and signing him as an ambassador. And, oh, it's the superstar, even though he said I was a demon possessed by the devil and put here by Satan himself to fucking, you know, pollute the world. Let's send him a check. That's the thing. He goes back to the WWF. Physically, he's unable to wrestle. They make him a manager for Don Morocco. They make him a commentator, and as good a promo as he was, he was not a good commentator. No. And then at the end of 88, there was that house cleaning, where all of a sudden, I mean, the Bulldogs left for different reasons, but Don Morocco, Ken Patera, Billy Graham, a lot of the guys who were really the stars of, not the previous generation, but the previous era, I guess you could the say. The previous decade. The previous decade, or guys that were coming into their own at the end of that decade and hit their peak early in the 80s, WWF was letting them go, and then it was 89, where Billy Graham starts going and talking about the dangers of steroids and all the health problems he's having. That's when we first started hearing that Billy Graham was you know, close to death, it was like yeah. in 1989, but it's interesting just because, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, that's when... All the Lyle Alzado stuff came out, and he died, and steroids were... He got cancer, and then he died, and everyone attributed it to steroids. Not everyone, but it was attributed to steroids yeah. by many. And we all assume, because of that, because of Billy Graham talking about the issues he's having, that everyone who was a wrestler in the late 80s and early 90s, this was their future. And a lot of guys went too far with different things and paid the price, but... By and large, you're not seeing that, which I think is really interesting. You're not seeing what Billy Graham said was going to happen to everyone in 1989, which is, you know, all the wrestlers who took steroids in the 80s ending up physically like he did. Well, there's a reason for that also that sometimes people overlook is that he was taking those steroids in the 60s. And... I'm pretty sure they probably refined some of them monkey hormones uh, 
in that 20 year period. But remember, as I said, he was born in what, 1943. So when he got in the wrestling business, he was already 27. He was already a bodybuilder. That's where he met Schwarzenegger. And those guys, that early generation of bodybuilders and guys that were on the cover of all the weightlifting magazine, Dave Draper, I remember that um, was just almost cartoonly big in, in those 60s bodybuilding magazines. They were taking shit that experimental shit and or they had no frame of reference as to what the dosage might be or cycling on and off or whatever. And Graham was kind of in in wrestling, one of the, I'm not going to say the first, but one of the first wave of guys who were doing steroids and they were more primitive and more unpurified or whatever. And there was no guidebook in a lot of cases to go by for what they were doing. That's why at one point, did, did Graham not get up to within 11 pounds of the world bench press record? Not for wrestlers, for anybody? I'm not sure. I think I heard that story at one, at one point in, you know, in his, whether it was the late 60s, early 70s, through the period of his athletic prime and when he was really big. But, you know, I think that's the guys that were taking the stuff in the 80s. They didn't take it as long. They didn't take the kind of, you know, prehistoric shit. I'm not saying it was good for him, but Graham has literally, he's had hip replacements and and he's been in and out of the hospital for various issues and replacements and surgeries and everything since, like you said, almost 35 years. And that has to be playing somewhat of a part in this. You would think, again, we haven't seen a rash of people go down and just everything go down like it did in just a few years, it seemed like, for Billy Graham. And then after that, when the scandals in 91 and 92 happened, Billy Graham front and center, he accused Pat Patterson of stuff, which caused Pat Patterson, who had been his tag partner in San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. To never speak to Billy Graham ever again. Wouldn't accept an apology, nothing. Because he was really the main person. I shouldn't say that. He was someone most vocally, publicly. He was someone that people would think would know the real story and, and why would he lie, even though he was lying. And when people were making accusations about Terry Garvin and Mel Phillips, I say accusations, I believe those stories are actually true. Yeah. Uh, there was Murray Hodgkin who made an accusation against Pat Patterson. He was later proved to be a career con artist, but Billy Graham in that mix jumped in there to also point the finger at Pat Patterson. and. You know, that's the thing where it was, you couldn't tell how much of it was genuine anger or how much of it was, you guys fired me at the end of 88, I'm never going to let you forget it. Well, and he didn't ever let him forget it, except when he forgot it, when they rehired him for various things. And that was the thing is, it it seemed kind of sad. And I know that it's been a lot of years that he's been in ill health and obviously, you know, needed help at various points, but it was almost like clockwork. Whenever any deal or affiliation or whatever would expire or the, they did something for him and the goodwill would wear off, then he would be back with the, oh, they're all horrible and they're possessed by the devil. And that kind of became the thing where it would bounce back and forth. But I guess over the last however many years they've been copacetic 
Where were they? Were uh, they well, no, on the outs again? Because he won the Hall of Fame. Did they fall out again? They fell out again after the Hall of Fame, for sure. I remember but seeing But then the, did they fall back in again after that? That would have been something recent, because I remember seeing some stuff online just a few years ago. Like people got upset at him for saying that Adam Cole should get on steroids. <laughs> Which, again, even if you think Adam Cole should be bigger, if one of the main things about your life is your body breaking down because of the steroids you were on, don't tell someone else yeah. to get on them. yeah. But he was still out there, and I don't think, based on what I read, that he was necessarily in their camp at the moment. Okay, but that, well, and that's before he got before he openly got sick again. I don't know if that changed yeah. anything. Well, and and they still paid tribute to him, and you know, that's the thing. Vince has the soft spot there because he was superstar. Billy Graham was what Vince wanted to main event his worldwide company with, and he just didn't get to do the company in time or Graham was already too old and didn't make it long enough. You know what though? Can I say this not to take anything away from superstar Billy Graham, but that was probably the best thing for Vince McMahon because Hulk Hogan personality wise was the right guy for that spot for Vince McMahon. Yeah. I don't know if Billy Graham would have been able to have a five year run as the champion, as the main baby face working a schedule. Even though Hogan didn't work necessarily the full schedule that everyone worked, just constantly on the run, constantly going. If you have substance abuse issues, you know, I mean, that's the time where they're going to really pop up. So I think all things considered, Billy Graham may have been the inspiration, but he probably wouldn't have been the right guy in the role for the long term. Oh, I, and I agree with that 100%. He, he would have got the spot, and at the, but at the same time, if he got it in 78, it, it, like you said, it wouldn't have worked out as well. But also, there was no Hulk Hogan in 1978. Uh, but if he, was the, if he was the same superstar Graham, he would have drawn huge for the first couple of years. And again, especially in the Northeast. But over a longer period of time, he wasn't the... Uh, not the wrestler, but he wasn't the employee that Hogan would be to go the extra mile to do all the, to want to get into movies, to do all the other thing. I don't think he would have been able to handle that like Hogan did. No. And again, perfect guy for Vince McMahon. Hogan hears that Ventura is going to start uh, a union and he goes and tells Vince, I don't know if Billy Graham would have reacted the same way as he was a pop star. <laughs> Billy Graham would have said, hey, Jesse, when, when can I be the first one to sign up? Can I bring in Ernie and Ivan to talk to everyone about what we did? Yes, yeah. Oh, that's another thing. We've talked about it before, but when Graham and Ivan Koloff and Ernie Ladd were the top three heels in Vince Sr.'s WWF territory, they negotiated a deal where they would all three walk unless all three of them got main event pay, no matter which one of them was in the title match on top or whatever, they got paid the same thing because they were rotating them in and out against uh, Bruno or... Uh, yeah, Bruno was champion at that point. And they felt that they had all worked together to get the territory business doing that. So even if the guy was one guy was on top one night, all three of them would get to main event money. So that was a pretty fucking good deal. And in terms of you brought up before, there were so many superstar Billy Graham impersonators, not impersonators, but he inspired so many to the way the Road Warriors inspired so many people. Right. You know, Jesse Ventura being Jesse the Body Ventura, very similar to Billy Graham in terms of not really being a guy in the ring that could 
you know, go the way, you know, someone else may be able to go. Yes, actually, they had kind of a the superstar was a little more mobile in his younger days than Jesse, but it kind of the same kind of thing. But Jesse Ventura, you brought up Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan said that Dusty Rhodes and Billy Graham were his inspirations for getting into the business, and the Billy Graham influence is obvious. But it's really another Billy Graham-influenced wrestler, Austin Idol, who Hogan took so much from when he went to Minnesota and started changing the promos. It wasn't Idol mania anymore. It was Hulkamania. Yeah. Another person influenced by the look and the style of Billy Graham. And, you know... It- Again, the the body was new, but the bleach blonde heel in in the Northeast especially goes back to the Graham brothers, Jerry and Eddie, and to the Fargos, Jackie and Don, and to the, uh, you know, Shire brothers also were doing at the time, Ray Stevens and Roy Shire. But the, the addition of the, the body and the physique would not only, it, it, it grabbed people's attention in those days because most of the guys weren't built like that. And to be honest, in the 70s, when I was a hardcore fan, smart fan, whatever, you didn't want to see the bodybuilders because they were usually the shits, right? Their matches weren't any good. They just, the body looked good. Yeah, you had just seen Zulu, yeah. Yes, and the boys. Even into the early 80s, the boys in the locker room most of the time would roll their eyes when a guy with a body came in the locker room because they're, ah, shit, here's another one you got to work with. He's going to be stiff and fucking hurt me and whatever. And it, it, and it wasn't until Vince just made it necessary that you have to have that kind of physique to get a decent job into business that the boys even wanted to work with a guy with a physique, much less have one themselves. Because it not only wasn't necessary, but it hampered, in a lot of cases, the guy's ability to fucking work. And in the territory days, who had time to go to the gym that often? You were in the car fucking eight hours a day. So, but then, you know, but that was the vision that Vince had, and Billy Graham fit it perfectly. Well, he certainly did, and superstar Billy Graham, people will still remember him and talk about him. There's a biography, as you mentioned before. WWE has produced a documentary in the past, and a lot of those promos are out there. The local promos are really what you want to try to find, but those promos are out there, and a big influence on wrestling. I'm sure that influence will continue. And uh, and as well, we'll see them profiled, I think, in three or four weeks or whatever coming up. On Well, we'll talk about it next week when we have Evan on for uh, Dark Side of the Ring, the, the entire Graham family. You, the entire Graham family, meaning not just Eddie and Mike, but Dr. Jerry and even Billy? Jer- Jer- well, Jerry, Eddie, Mike, Billy, and occasionally Luke. Oh, even Luke? Wow. He's, sort, he, he's probably going to be, I mean, they've only got an hour, so he's going to be the Zeppo of the piece. But, uh, you know, it is the, the Graham family, but with, with some emphasis on modern day, but they, I have reason to believe unless it doesn't make the final cut, they will reenact the scene of Jerry Graham stealing his mother's corpse. So we got that going for us. Uh, but anyway, but superstar Billy Graham. So there you have it. Um, you know, 79 years old and most people have been thinking it was going to be, uh, you know, bad for the last, as we said, 20 or 25 years, he's been in ill health. So he was a fighter till the end. 
but you can't uh, you can't take anything away from the legacy or the the impact that he had on this business. And as we saw, as we just talked about, in a relatively short period of time. Did you ever see that footage? I know you're not a big fan of the garden shows from the late 70s, but it's a clip that now has gone around again. It's Billy Graham versus Ivan Putsky, and it's the build-up to the Polish hammer. Yes. And he hits it. Those people wanted to see Billy Graham lose so badly. They explode in the garden like nothing you've ever heard. Yes, that that was the thing is he was they had never seen a heel champion in New York City. Uh, the the top singles champion had not been a heel for more than 3 weeks in in anybody's lifetime. Um think about that because I guess Rogers was really he was a heel. That was it. Yeah, that was really it and he but, was Briefly, the champion because of everything happening uh, between his injuries and the politics. Yeah, that the the thing is between they didn't even use a singles world title in the Northeast when Rocca was on top. He wasn't a, a champion; he was just the star. They didn't have a singles title until Rogers was the NWA champion, and Vince Senior was trying to steal him, and the belt came along with it. But that was just for a like a less than two year period, and then they. They took the belt off Buddy, and then he had the heart trouble. So since the 30s, all the champions had been baby faces. And now the people have this fucking guy that, that like you said, Moscaris can't take him, and Bruno can't win the rematch, and Putsky can't stop him, and Chief J. Strongbow, and whoever Dusty, the fuck. Dusty. Dusty. They stole the title from Dusty in the garden, but he couldn't take it away from Superstar. So, yeah, it, it got to the point where any time that anybody looked like they had a chance, the people would come unglued. And that, it was not showing signs of slowing down. And then in comes, and I, I love Bob Backlund. He's a great guy. He's a heck of a person. But the most of the fans, they liked him for the first couple of years, as we've talked about. Hardcore fans hated him because he was namby-pamby goody two-shoes. And he just didn't, he didn't work compared to the colorful personalities that they had had before and after in that spot. No. And again, you watch those local promos and you have Billy Graham and the Grand Wizard, <laughs> two incredibly flamboyant personalities. And then you get Bob Backlund with Arnold Skoland and Vince asks him a question. And he's just, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to be working as hard as I can. It just, it's a weird promo, but it worked. Like you said. Whatever you want to say, it worked for the first few years. By 82, by Snooker, Backlund was losing the fans and also cut his hair, started wearing a singlet. Yeah. Found a way to make himself unappealing to what the changing wrestling world was becoming. Uh, but uh, again, can you imagine? Can you imagine Billy Graham looking over at Bob Backlund's set? Look at me and look at him, and he wants to put the belt on this guy. This concludes part one of the Jim Cornette Those We Lost in 2023 Omnibus. Download and start part two right now.